Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast, is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com slash laststandmedia. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast. This is episode 149. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by, hey, the only person on the show this week. Chris is not here. Dustin Furman, our executive producer of Last Stand Media. Dustin, how are you today? I'm doing well. It's uh, It's been a weird day, like two days ago. Did you ever go to bed and it feels like you don't sleep the whole night, but you know you did a little bit, like it was like a stage one sleep. So yesterday I was a zombie because of that. But today I, I got a little extra sleep. So you're getting I feel like you're getting the best me right now. Nice. Colin. Do you do you ever siesta during the day? Siesta? No, not during the day. So you, you don't you don't like to take a, like a one o'clock nap or a four or five o'clock nap. I love a good nap every once in a while. I mean, I, I've tried to stop taking them, but I love a good nap. I used to nap very frequently. Um, at my old job in particular, when I had to be up early, but now, I mean, thanks to the way our schedule works, we can be a little flexible. So I don't have to get, if I don't have to get up early, then I usually don't need a nap. So it works out. Yeah. We kind of have a workflow at last stand where everyone just does their work whenever they want, as long as it's done at like the time it needs to be published. I don't care when people work. So, right. And hopefully everyone works like less than 40 hours. That's kind of the ideal if we can do that. So well, Dustin, welcome to the show today. No, Chris, he's absent. He'll be back next week. But this is a pretty big week for Sacred Symbols and for the PlayStation community. Returnal is finally out. And we're going to talk about that in a little while. 
And uh, I'm interested to see what you think of it. And we'll get Chris's opinion, of course, about it next week. But before we get into Sacred Symbols, just want to welcome everyone. Thank you so much for your love, kindness and support of our show. Whether you support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Media, where more than 10,000 of you do, or you listen to us on free feeds on YouTube, etc. We thank you regardless. We could not do this without you. And uh, especially recently, thank you so much for your kind words. Let's see. What else do we have to say here? Oh, Sacred Symbols Plus. That is our weekly supplemental podcast only for patrons. Last week, Mr. Maddie Plays and I sat down. Mr. Maddie Plays, of course, being a YouTuber, a very popular YouTuber and the host of our Xbox podcast, Defining Duke. We did a review discussion of Outriders. We used to call these things, Dustin, spoiler cast and review discussions. I might bring that term back in at some point, but to people get a little upset that we talk more about the game mechanically and more about the game as it is and less about getting into plot points. So I wanted to set that expectation properly that it is more like an hour and 15 minute deep dive into the game and what we think of it. And we do talk about the story and we do spoil it, but it is more of a review discussion than a spoiler cast. We usually do. Right. And next week and the week after that, Sacred Symbols Plus will have two special guests. First up, David Jaffe will be on Sacred Symbols Plus. And then after that, IGN's Ryan McCaffrey, a very good friend of mine, will be on the show. Two of the most requested guests we've had from the audience since we started doing interviews on Plus. So thank you so much and uh, keep the feedback coming. Of course, we have merch at laststandmedia.shop. Now, Dustin, I wanted to kick it back over to you because we've started, we've empowered someone from our audience, let's say. We like doing that. We pull people from our audience. You came from the audience. Ben, our associate producer, came from the audience. And so we, I mean, Mr. Matty Plays came from the audience. He's a, he was a big Sacred Symbol or um, uh, beyond PS I Love You and Sacred Symbols fan. So we like to empower people from the audience. And the newest person we've empowered from our audience is a guy named Lockmort. And people might be familiar with him. You're going to see him pop up more on our social media feeds and on your YouTube channel. So talk a little bit about where we found this guy and what he's going to be doing for us. Right. So Lockmort, some of you may know, like he's been around for, I mean, his first video was five years ago. The infamous Avocado Gate video, Colin, if you remember this of video. Course. Yeah, of course. And so one of the it, great one of the great tragedy. I I know <laughs> Greg ate that avocado. I just wanted to throw that out there. He definitely did to this day. So still. Yeah. Like what, what was that like seven years ago? I mean, I, I yeah. know I hold a grudge. So. So it's funny for me just because I remember watching the original Lockmore edits. And so now um, after you had left kind of funny, he'd kind of gone gone quiet for a long time. But he reemerged when uh, we started doing video again and putting out these awesome edits that you may have seen Colin and I retweet over the past month, two months or so. Mm-hmm. And so we, it's funny because Colin, you emailed me and was like, let's, let's get Locke on board. Let's make this legit. And it's funny because Ben and I were having conversations and we were getting pretty close to pitching it to you to bring in Locke in, in one way or another. So it was kind of like a, a synergy, your favorite word, synergy. Going on. I love that word. Yeah. Yeah, A lot of synergy. So, yeah, it's good. It's good to have him on board. Yeah. I'm glad he's here. Yeah. So, the plan right now, if you haven't seen them already, the lock, we're we're labeling them Lockmort's edits because I feel like there's a brand there, you know, already with with Lockmort. So, there's going to be new Lockmort edits every week on uh, our YouTube channel, Last Stand Media. And we're also going to be posting them directly to social because we just want these videos are so good. We want them out everywhere to as many people as possible. If you haven't seen them already, there are two up on our channel. There is uh, a Defining Duke one, Defining Carrick, that is really good. And then we have a compilation of all of his previous edits 
Last Stand media related all together so you can catch up and then experience them from here on out. Cool. Yeah. Welcome on board Lockmore and keep being present in our community, whether I mean, we see people on Patreon. That's our super community, of course. And I would say that the most dedicated uh, Last Stand Media fans are on our Discord, which you have to be a patron to access. But make yourself known and seen and do cool stuff. And I feel like we really try to pull from from the audience and the work you do and, and the interest you show in us. And and we appreciate that a lot. So welcome, Lockmore. And thank you so much for your kind words about his videos as well, which I'll now take credit for and profit off of. Uh, oh, the other thing, Dustin, before we move on into just a few things that I want to touch on, then we'll get into what we're playing. Resident Evil Village is out. By the time you're hearing this, we obviously don't work with publishers. We don't accept free copies of games for uh, or early copies of games for Sacred Symbols. So we'll talk about that game next week. I actually don't even know very much of what people think about it. I, I know that it seems to be getting very good scores. I didn't even look at the Metacritic, though. I've heard that it's kind of on the shorter side, which is good. And that's about as much as I know. So I'm very, very excited. Are you going to play it? When, oh. I mean, by the time this goes live, are you going to are you going to play it tonight? Because we're recording it the night it comes out. Uh, no, just because, you know me, Colin, I got to go get the disc. I got to oh, get right. I got to get the, the box copy. That's so right. that's weird. Yeah. I will be going out and getting it. Unfortunately, here's the problem, Colin, is that Walmart in particular retail, you can get ten dollars off. Not all new releases, but many. So unfortunately, I have to go to Walmart tomorrow morning, which is just I mean, you don't have to. No, you're, 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 you're right. To do that. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where it on PSN. it's almost worth the ten dollars to not step into Walmart. But I'm just too much like the, the chance to save ten dollars is too alluring to me. Does Amazon not do the thing where they deliver it the day it comes out anymore and stuff like that? They, they do. But then it's it's ten dollars more because it's that it's, Walmart right. pricing. So you're really caught up on this. Ten dollars. Yes. I mean, that's fine. I, I mean, a penny saved is a penny earned, as Benjamin Franklin said, and I, right. I agree. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't, <laughs> I don't shoo away ten dollars. You want to give me ten dollars? That's great. I'll fucking do something with that. I was amped up the other day. I mean, it wasn't the other day. It was months ago now, actually. So that's not true at all. But I found a dollar bill just twirling in the street in my neighborhood, oh, and shit. I was like amped up. I was like, cool, dollar bill. And then I just left it on my mini fridge in the garage, and I've never done anything with it. It's just this crinkled, weathered dollar bill. When I was a Landscaper in college, though, I used to find money pretty often. Like, you would find $20 bills, $10 bills, like in leaf piles. Like, you know, like if there was like a corner where everything was just blowing for months, you would find like a lot of trash, but you would find some money. And it used to be a kind of a tradition. Like, the person who found it, if you know, they would like bring people to lunch or do something, you know, what? Dude, nice little memory. Here's the nice problem for people like you and I, Colin, at least I assume you're the same, is that I often think about either saving or spending money way too much, even for small purchases. Like I saw today that Dragon's Crown Pro is $5 on PSN. And I've, I've been thinking about it all morning because I'm like, it's only $5, but am I actually going to play it? And the amount of, of timeshare it's spent in my mind is, has been probably greater than $5 at this point. I need to just buy it. Just just yeah. do it at that lower price. I also am of the mind that if you, I don't know, it's the whole thing. It really, the conversation started with with Steam years ago, where because they they were really the arbiters of the of the original steep sale in the digital space, and people would argue like you're just spending so much more money than you actually would just by trying to take advantage of sales. And I kind of have fallen prey to that in the past, which is why I just don't even read about the sales anymore because 
I'm buying shit just because I'm like, one day I'll play this and I never play this stuff. So I never play it. And you can always, I I don't know. So I'm a little different where it's an easier time in my life now than it was in my twenties, let's say, but I don't worry about money in certain ways. And then I'm very concerned about money in other ways. I don't make big purchases almost ever. I almost never buy clothes or nothing. That's a big purchase, but I, I don't own a car. I own a house, but I don't buy like, but then when it comes to food, I'll just spend whatever. Right. You know, like whatever it costs, like the family came over the other day. My dad was here. My sister is all the kids. My and uh, I just bought like, you know, a hundred dollars worth of pizza because I was like, well, who cares? It's, like, it's food. And I don't buy anything else. I literally I don't own any clothes. All of the under Micah makes fun of me because all the underwear I own are just me undies that I've gotten over time for ads that I had to do. Right. It's like basically my entire underwear collection. All my socks are like from that, you know, that stuff. It's so funny. I will say, Colin, when you you took Ben and I out to dinner in Santa Monica, and that was that was a legendary dinner for me. Not that I've had nice dinners and stuff, but I might. Unfortunately, my cheapskate, it's getting better now. I think now that I spend you remember, I, I think we went to Scopa, right? Which is a great Italian restaurant in. Yeah. In Venice. I don't even yeah. think it was that much by fancy dinner accounts. Like, it's not like hundred dollars. It was probably like a hundred. It was probably well, it was probably a like hundred bucks each just by sure. the end because drinks, know, which is fine. I think that's I think that's totally fine because that's what that's what I would like to spend on, you know, Mm. is good food and drink. And if you go out to a restaurant with with your woman, really nice restaurant, right? And you spend two hundred dollars. I think you're getting off pretty good. I mean, you're getting a nice probably thirty or forty dollar entree each. Maybe you're getting an appetizer. You're probably having two or three cocktails each, maybe a dessert. I mean, that's good shit. Yeah, I can't wait to get back to that world again. That's the only thing I miss. That's the only way my life has changed, really, is not going out to eat because I don't like to socialize otherwise. So this has been great. Right. Yeah. This has been like the last ship. Remember that show? I actually never watched that show, but it was a TNT show and it was about like a ship that was out to sea during a pandemic oh. and like no one was alive. Yeah, that sounds interesting, actually. It's a little it, it, like Snowpiercer. I think uh, Adam Baldwin. Oh, Snowpiercer sounds cool, too, but I'm always confused because I'm there's like a snow drifter or something, too. Right there. And, so there's a movie which is is fantastic. And then they made a, a that's series. That's by the Korean guy. Yes. And it's the same thing as the show. I don't know. I just oh, okay. know there is a show. Okay. So I see. And it's about a train that like is in like just keeps going through the apocalypse, right? Yes. Or whatever. Yeah. yeah it's pretty neat. It's pretty cool. I like that. Yeah. All right. What the hell are we talking about here? Oh, one correction from last week. Michael Ca- uh, Candelaria wrote into us on Patreon. And remember, that's one of the perks you get for supporting us on Patreon is to submit your inquiries to our show, questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas. And he says, just wanted to mention here that even though It Takes Two is the second game from Hazelight Studios, Joseph Farah's also made Brothers A Tale of Two Sons. It's an awesome game with a great control concept. That is true. A lot of people wrote in about this. I think it's a I think it's a little bit of a pedantic correction, but I'm going to give it to you. Fair. Nonetheless, a few other notes that I wanted to touch on. Dustin will bounce these off of you. I don't know if you saw Haven, the Canadian studio that Sony has signed with ostensibly run by Jade Raymond of Ubisoft and EA Motive fame is starting to staff up. And a lot of these people are coming from Stadia. And from Google had either left when Jade Raymond left or have left more recently. Nothing too exciting to get about. I, I didn't even put it in the news here because when I was reading about who they hired, I'm like, uh, like, no offense. It's I'm sure they're great people. I'm sure they're very talented, but it's a lot of Ubisoft like Assassin's Creed people. And I'm like, oh, man. Yeah. So what do you think about this? Does this get you any more excited? No, not really. I mean, that's the thing is that it's cool. They're they're beefing up. Honestly, 
even with the announcement of more people joining the studio, I think it's still too early to for them to even say anything. Like you said, yeah. it's the the reactionary nature of the announcement. I just there's nothing to be excited about. It's fine. It's good. It's good information. But whatever. Very. Po- I think it's puzzling. I actually I, I asked you that because I actually am less confident than I was in the game. Now, the reason is, is because Sony and these guys have pitched each other and made a some sort of deal for a game but you're hiring like your designer and your lead art director and don't you want to make that together and then pitch it you're you jade raymond's not a creative i don't know how many times i have to say it you know she's not she's a producer now they're incredibly important in games but you're not the creative. And so that's what makes me nervous. It's not like going in with Kojima and saying like, oh, you have this crazy idea on the back of a napkin. OK, Kojima with Raymond. She didn't make anything. You know, she didn't make Assassin's Creed. That wasn't her idea. She didn't make Watch Dogs. That wasn't her idea. And she hasn't released any game since. So I don't know. I, I, I was reading that and I'm like, man, this this seems even more half baked somehow than I thought it was. I thought I thought it was half baked, like where Jade Raymond was like, all right, we got a little collective here in Quebec. We got something marinating together. Let's pitch it to Sony. We have a lot of power. They're looking for a second party relationship. But it seems like it was even smaller than that, which makes to the point more, it more puzzling that they even announced it. It would have been right. so much cooler to announce it later. You can't take it. You can't announce it again. So I don't know. I'm disappointed in that personally. Now, I am interested in your thoughts on this next one, Dustin, because we were talking about how you love your brick and mortar stores. You love your physical video games. Right. And I found this on gamesindustry.biz, which is a really great website that I like to read about the games industry. It's not like for your normal gamer. I don't think most people would find it interesting, but I do. And there was a story on there and it's called GameStop opening new U.S. East Coast Fulfillment Center, a 700,000 square foot Pennsylvania facility um, to support the transformation of e-commerce. This is an Amazon level Amazon size warehouse, basically for a regional warehouse, not one of their huge ones where they're going to start. They're actually investing money in in this e-commerce idea and this idea that they're going to pivot and survive. And I actually also saw that their stock was upgraded from a B minus to a B, which is still not great, but it means that it's more stable post uh, speculation that we were talking about earlier this year. And Ryan Cohen is leading the board at GameStop, who's the guy who kind of pioneered Chewy.com, which I think is a great website. I, I love that website. Uh, it's a it's a pet store. So what do you think about this? I mean, do you think GameStop is going to survive? It sounds like they're betting on it. Well, here's my thoughts. I mean, their, their shift to e-commerce is interesting because GameStop's current e-commerce is terrible. Like... I've ordered things from GameStop. The shipping is more expensive. I mean, it's hard to compete with Amazon Prime, but still, even even Target, if you have a red card and it's over a certain price, you get free shipping. Not the case with GameStop. At least not what last time I ordered something. And it didn't come anywhere near on time of the release of the game. So I guess if they're hoping to at least compete on the level of Amazon, that's interesting but my question is what did they have to offer the other e-commerce websites that sell video games are doing that they think that they can do better i mean amazon is huge right now um obviously and then 
a lot of people also target as it has been huge for for video games i think a lot of the red card has to do with that as well walmart walmart like i said they have their in-store 50 or 10 dollars off thing but i just don't know what they would have to offer that would make them competitive over anyone else i think the lack of interest in them on the market from any sort of buyer that's willing to scoop up all of the stock at a certain price and take it private or sell it to equity firms to save the company those kinds of that at least public lack of interest tells me that they have nothing that anyone is interested in because at some point a company will come in and say like oh a company like amazon would be like oh gamestop has a very worthwhile and built up infrastructure with video games we should just buy them and absorb that but amazon like you said has a better pipeline and walmart has a better pipeline and so and the GameStop's at a massive disadvantage because they only are known for selling one thing. And obviously they've tried to pivot to other things and they bought like Spring Mobile and then I think sold Spring Mobile. And all. so I don't know what's going on with their divestments and whatnot. I still think that there's no prayer that 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 company pr- survives, but I don't want them to go out of business. I, I know Micah is a huge fan of GameStop. She always jokes around. She loves going into GameStop. She says she used to go in every week Whoa. just to like walk around and like look at what they have and stuff. So people do enjoy it, but it's not for me. I don't enjoy going and buying games in person. And I have literally bought one physical game in person in the last 10 years. And that was Super Mario Odyssey. Right. And for me, the thing is, like, I love physical games, but I don't enjoy going to GameStop to buy them after numerous bad experiences. For OK, just just I'll give one example. One thing that really grinds grinds my gears, like gets me fired up. I've gone in. Because they have, a, they have it listed. They have a new game. They have one copy left. And you go and you ask for this one game. And they present you the floor copy that is right. opened and has all their shitty stickers on it. And they try to sell it to you as a brand new copy. No reduction in price because they've kept the disc behind the, behind the counter. I have multiple times. Not, I haven't, since I haven't shopped there in probably, I don't even think this entire year. Maybe in last year. I'll just be like, no, I don't want that. Do you do you have an uh, an unopened one? I'm like, no, but it's the same. I'll say I'm good and just walk out. And I've had GameStop employees be like puzzled that I wouldn't want their stinky opened copy of Fire Emblem or whatever. <laughs> yeah, well, like, people's like mitts have been all over it a million times. Right? You, it's not new. It's not new. It's not new. Yeah, it's it's not new. No. Period. I agree. I totally agree. That's why I was so fascinated, and we've talked about it on the show, but. Back in the day, like you used to be able to go to GameStop or EB or something and return games like 10 days after you bought it opened. Yeah. I had no idea like how some shit like this is even possible, but it's very interesting. All right. Nonetheless, uh, I wanted to say before we get any further that and I'm only bringing this up now and not later because it, it will be out by the time people have heard the show is that randomly Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance is on PlayStation 4 for people that don't know. And this was published out of nowhere. It is an old PS2 action RPG, like hack and slash game from very early in the generation, 2001. And it was built by Snowblind Studios. People might know Snowblind because they were they did like a bunch of Champions of Norath stuff and some racing games on N64. But they were actually folded into Monolith, bought by Warner Brothers and folded into them and basically became a lot of the Lord of the Rings spirit of that studio. So a little bit of an interesting pedigree there for them. So check that out if you want. I saw Mr. Matty plays again, coming up a lot on the show today. He was really excited about it as well. I saw him tweeting about it. 
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. All right, Dustin, it's time to talk about what we're playing. Okay. And I think um, before we get into all the other things, I think we should just talk about Returnal. Let's do it. I'm curious what you think of this game. I've tried to be as quiet as possible because I have a lot to say. I think people are going to be a little surprised by what I have to say. And uh, before I get into any of that, I'm curious, what do you think of the game? So... I'm having a hard time because sometimes you can play two games at once that are two different styles of game. I played a decent amount of Returnal last weekend, but I quickly realized that the a game that requires this, this level of focus and skill and learning the game, there was no taking breaks on this one. So I've kind of put it down for most of this week in order to focus on Nier until I, I finish that, but... Overall, my thoughts, very much. I mean, this is a Housemark game through and through. And we kind of got the impression of that in some of the, the later trailers with some of the more bullet hell aspect of it. But it just, even in the way it feels, it has that, you know, the controls feel really tight. It's got a good frame rate. I don't know if it's locked 60, but it, it, it feels good, really good to play. Controls are tight. The thing that I'm finding about it now, which... To be clear to the audience, I have been to the first boss many times, but I've not beaten him. And then I kind of was like, okay, well, I really got to focus in to do this. So I'm going to hold for a little bit. Is I'm finding that the, the roguelike nature of it and the RNG can be a bit extreme at times where I'll have a run that I'm like, this game is not that hard. I'm, I am blitzing through this. And then something unfortunate has happened, which caused me to die. And then other runs where it feels like I'm, I'm really, really struggling the entire time. And I understand that that's the nature of roguelikes. But in certain situations, I'm like, man, I cannot, I can't catch a break this run. Which, I don't know, maybe, maybe to some people that would be appealing. But I've always, I've always been kind of resistant to like random, too many random elements in games. Just because I, I'd rather prefer something that is consistent that I can know like, okay, this is the, the skill level I need. This is what I need to do. So I don't know. Maybe that's something I'll adapt to as I, as I keep playing the game. 
as far as the the technical aspects because i think that's kind of the conversation around this game that's really been blowing up i've not had the game crash for me but again i haven't put as many hours as other people i know that our associate editor uh, and producer ben he can't even play the game did you hear about this yeah like this uh, some i've heard this from a few people or, or anecdotally that yeah the game just doesn't work at all no so so ben will like load in the game he will get to the part ex- extremely minor spoiler but you find like the body of of yourself i believe that was in one of the early trailers he said that he can't get past that cutscene. it it errors out every time and it crashes he's so tried weird. deleting the game obviously restarting his console reinstalling all kinds of stuff he can't get it to run he doesn't know if there's something wrong with his PS5, if he needs to get it sent to Sony or anything. So there seems to be a pretty wide range of of technical or lack thereof. You know, there's some people have no problems. There's some people that are having regular crashes. And with such long runs, I think that's other been the, the main thing is that the runs of this game can be really long. And the game is clearly susceptible to crashing, which I saw just to, you know, to throw it over to you, that you are putting this game down for a little bit. Yeah, I kept I, I'm having like a weird relationship with this game. First, I'll say that I'm not that into it. I'm just going to I'll come out and say like right at the top, Ooh. I'm not that into the game and crazy. I don't think it's a bad game. I think it's actually really great. I, I think that it does a lot of what it does really well. But I, in my notes here, you know, I was I was trying to take notes as I was playing. And the question that I kind of circle on my pad here is like, is it fun? Is it what I'm looking for? This is what I circle that kind of on my pad. And I've made the argument in the past that I don't think games necessarily need to be fun because I don't know how we even define that. I think that you can have an engaging game without it being fun. Like, I don't know that The Last of Us is fun, but it's incredibly engaging, right? Like, it's just a wonderful game. But I don't know that I'm like, you know, scatting around the map, beating the shit out of people, having a great time doing it. Like, I don't know. It's not that kind of game. Right. It's almost like movies like Schindler's List is a great movie. Right. But it's not entertainment. It's doesn't. It's right. just, you know what I mean? Like, right. Of course, like the Seinfeld episode where Jerry's making out during Schindler's List and it becomes like this big dramatic thing. <laughs> right. In the movie theater. So you can see all of the trappings of Housemark in the game. And I think it's really cool. But I've kind of realized as a longtime Housemark fan, really going back, not to their beginning, because I didn't even know who they were when they started. But going back to PlayStation 3, the beginning of PlayStation 3 with Super Stardust is the more complicated their games get, the worse they are. I, I think that there's a relationship that I've kind of identified here for me. Now, I know that that's not going to be true for everyone. But when I think about the pinnacle of Housemark and what they can do, Super Stardust is one and it's different iterations. I think it's best on Vita, Super Stardust Delta. That game is great. And then Resogun. And those games are very simple. They're not easy, but they are simple. There's not much to understand about Super Stardust. To, to be good at it is a totally different thing, but playing it, it's immersive and it's fun. And playing a game like Resogun Defender around a cylinder is fun. It's great fun. It's not very complicated, but it's not easy. And when the game gets like a tier below that, or when Housemark gets like a tier, let's say above that with the complications, the games get a little worse. So like they're still great games, but you have like Outland, right, which was playing a lot with polarity, which was fun, but it lost a little bit of its luster because it got a little more complicated. And then above that, you have games like Dead Nation and even above that Alien Nation. Now, I like Dead Nation, 
But Alien Nation lost me because by that time, I'm like, what is there's so it's you're losing the plot of what makes your games run and what makes your games good. And it's interesting to watch them just ping pong between these different games. And sometimes they get it and sometimes they don't. And within them is a studio that can really deliver the stuff. But I think the problem with Returnal is not the game for me. It's that I it's not giving me at all what I want. Mm. And I'm very comfortable putting it down because, first of all, I'm not good at it. I, I don't know if I said that already, but I'm not good at the game. I, I can't even get out of the first biome. Not that I played it for more than a few hours, right? Like, I'm, hor- I'm horrible at the game. So that's number one. But I think the thing that bothers me the most is that what was bringing me into the game then started pushing me out of the game. And what I mean by that is learning more about Celine and her situation has been really cool. Finding the different audio logs as she learns about this returnal kind of cycle that she's in and the house and the, the sci-fi and this mysterious Xeno society and all the statues. And it's very cool. But then the game keeps just giving you things to like, it's like, oh, this thing, that's that. Oh, this thing, that's that. And that thing, that does that. And that thing, that, and that thing, that, and that thing, that, and that thing. And it just goes on and on and on to the point where like, there's a whole list of shit. And I'm like, what? what? How did Housemark make this? Why did Housemark make this? That was kind of like what my, my major question. And so I know that even, and we can talk about the technical issues and we will, but even when the game ameliorates those, I'm not I will. I want to see more. I want to get more into it. I want to give it a chance as I do with all games that I play. But I know that it's never going to. I know already enough about it to know that it's not what I want. Like, I know enough to know that it feels good to play, but I don't want to play it the way it wants me to play it. You know, that's a lot. But does that make sense? No, that makes sense to me. And that's actually one thing I'm really glad you brought up about this game that I really don't like is that every game has their own language so to say it's like we we have an internal list a a list of words that mean certain things in video games and sometimes different games will call the same thing different things that make sense for each game and returnal is like that in that it's like okay this is a buff this is a you know the there's the uh it's like a leech. I can't. It's not called a leech, though. I know what you're talking but about. Parasite. Parasite. Right? So, right. right. You have to learn so many new words for things like, OK, this means health. I don't even I can't even fucking remember. Integrity. Integrity. Right. There's so many things to learn, which is I know that there's there's probably people that are listening to this right now. That's like, well, if you just played a little more, you would know. Like, I, no, I that's probably I get fair. that. But the thing that's frustrating me as someone who's only played probably four to five hours, not probably not even that, is I'm constantly having to hit pause and I go to that tutorial menu to try to just remember what things are um, and what because there will be sometimes you'll read a description of an item and it'll be like, we'll grant you 10% more of this. I'm like, fuck, what is what is what am I getting 10% more of? And then I have to hit start, go to the tutorial thing. And then like, it just, it feels like a lot to remember. Yeah. I mean, it is, and it is a lot to remember, especially for a house mark game. And I think there's going to be two or maybe three different types of people that approach this game. The first type of people are those that never played house mark games before. They have no expectations. And so their mind's kind of cleared and it really shouldn't at the end of the day matter who made the game. But it's kind of like a, for me, it matters because it's a lost opportunity where I'm like, man, this game could have cost, 10 million dollars less been 
75% less complicated and been really fun to play, in my opinion. And that was the thing. Like, I like playing the game, but I just don't like the cycle. And I think what I've kind of identified in my own gaming taste is with roguelikes is there are roguelike games that I do like. And there are roguelike games that I love. I think Rogue Legacy is a great example of a game that I, I absolutely adore that game. But that game does something really special in its lineage system where like you take with you everything you earn into the next life and you can kind of like pick and choose your traits and do all that. So you feel like you're progressing with this kind of game. I get frustrated because I'm like, all right, I just died. I just fell off a fucking cliff. I just fell in the lava. Now I have to do it all over again. I know that that is the nature of it and to and to pierce more and more into the story and into the world and the biomes. That's part of it. I get it, but it's just not doing it for me. And Peyton Stone wrote in about this and said, What's good, Sacred Symbols crew? Returnal is the first roguelike that I have ever played. Housemark has created a game with a beautiful environment, interesting lore, and addictive gameplay, as they almost always do. My question is this. I played four hours throughout the first weekend, and I'm already at the point where I think it's time to move on. Is four hours enough time for Returnal or a roguelike in general? I think that's plenty of time. To, I mean, that's what I'm saying, is that I know that this game is not going to improve itself for me in certain fundamental ways, because it cannot do that. It, it, you can already tell. But I also know that beyond the the barrier that my inept gameplay and frustration is keeping me from is potential answers to some of the questions I have and potential kind of smoothing out of wrinkles. And I know that I just don't know how to I don't know how to get around it because there's so much appealing about it. And yet there's so much that's not appealing about it to me. Do you think four hours is enough for Peyton and others to judge the game? I think that all depends on the person it's this is such a difficult thing for me because this is related, unrelated, but near replicant, really, really slow beginning to the point where I can see people starting it and then bouncing off of it because they're like, wow, this is pretty fetch questy or whatever. This isn't for me, but it really does shortly after that beginning start to really pick up. And at what point do we make excuses for games, you know, like for how long it takes, how, how much should you play? Cause I'm sure there's some people for returnal. They're like, well, it really takes four hours to even learn uh, how to play. So you're really not giving it a fair chance. Cause you're not really taking the time. And I don't know to, I, it, to me, it's really just comes to the variability of like, what are you willing to give a game as a person? Cause there's some people that will watch like, and it applies to movies and TV as well. There's some people that will watch three seasons of a show because they know it will get good. I would never do that. So and it, it's, it's variable on the game or, or whatever. So is four hours enough time for returnal? I think that depends. I feel like you as a person can know if there's a nugget there that you feel like you want to try to really look for and keep playing, go for it. Some people probably only need to play this game for 30 minutes to know that it's not for them. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like in my heart, I knew you know, I feel like just I knew like what's what's fascinating about Housemark is that they're able to kind of produce these different experiences, but also that I'm really good at some of them and not good at others. Like I am really scary good at Super Stardust. That's a tough game. And I'm really good at Resogun. I platinumed Resogun. It's not an easy platinum to get at all. But then you play a game like this. and I'm like, man, I'm just I don't know. I, I, I think I'm getting worse at games, too. But I, I, at first, because I think I was talking to oh, I was talking to Sophia, a friend of the show, Sophia Narwitz, and we were texting back and forth. And I'm like, I can't help but wonder if the returnal difficulty thing is a little overblown. And and because it difficulty often is overblown in games criticism, especially modern games criticism. Sophia is especially good at games. 
So she was having no problem with it. And then as I was playing, I was getting like self-conscious where I'm like, man, I am bad. I think she died like 10 times the entire time. You know, I probably died 10 times total in, in just trying to explore the game. But I will say that the game does something very well. And Mark Elfering wrote in about uh, something that will allow us to talk about this. And he says, hey, CDC, what do you guys will think, think will be the next technical leap with the next gen games? Recent offerings like The Last of Us 2 and Red Dead 2 had revolutionary environment effects like water and lighting. Will the next thing be more competent AI enemies or maybe furthering facial capture for 4K? Thoughts? Dustin, the next... It is obvious now that it is control that is the next-gen differentiator on PlayStation 5. The way that Returnal uses DualSense is insane and is the high watermark that needs to be met for the way that first and second party games at the very least use the controller. It is really remarkable. You don't realize how good it can get until you play a game like Astrobot or you play a game like Returnal. And it is quite remarkable. I, I'm into every the controller does so many things, noises and whirling and little rumbles and big rumbles and localized rumbles. And it's really cool. Like, I'm very impressed with the way Housemark has used the dual sense at the very least. What do you think? Yeah, the the dual sense on this one is crazy. In particular, the thing I love the most is the on the left trigger, there's like a two stage. You hold it down on a little lighter and then you'll hit a it'll get, you know, resistant. And that's yeah, your like normal. Yeah. yeah, that's a normal aim. But then when you when you fully depress the left trigger, you get the secondary fire of your weapon. It almost has uh, one of the guys from Digital Foundry said this, and I thought it was a perfect explanation. It has like a GameCube controller like quality yeah. to it. And so that's a really that's a really interesting idea for developers is that you kind of have a second. I guess if you think about both triggers, you have two extra buttons in a way. They're not really full buttons, but you can your the triggers can now be a two you know, two stages that that yeah. opens up it's a lot cool. of interesting possibilities. And I mean, that's something that's exclusive to the PlayStation five. That's something that you don't have on uh, Xbox, which there were rumors a few, a few months ago. Now that Xbox was looking into some sort of controller, like the, the dual sense. So we'll see if that ever happens, but yeah, the, as far as the next gen, I wanted to tackle the question overall about what next gen gaming is and i think we're starting to sort of get an idea and one thing that i think that i'm really happy we've talked about this on the show so i won't you know go over the point too much but just the consistently getting high frame rate games is been awesome and i'm i'm so glad that not only are players starting to realize this but the marketing is also pushing it both microsoft and sony have put out dedicated ads. I think I saw one on Sony's uh, or the PlayStation YouTube channel talking about high frame rate in particular with next gen and said it before. I'll say it again. Higher frame rate games feel better to play games that feel better to play are more likely not always, but more likely to be fun to play like mm. legitimately. It has to do with when you have a higher frame rate, there's less input delay. There's, so there's a better connection between your mind and the game. You know, obviously there's some some variables, whether, you know, from your mind to your hands, the controller, the game, whatever. But it's a really big deal. And not to say that this wasn't 
possible on uh, older gen games, but I'm just glad to see it being a priority. And I think that just to to cap this off, I think the real proof in the pudding is going to be Ratchet and Clank with the really fast loading. I'm expecting, I'm hoping that we're going to get a a real view of what is possible with the SSD. Yeah, it's cool because we'll talk about Ratchet in a minute uh, in a little bit more detail, but it is interesting to kind of get different games limited from Sony Studios published first and second party games that are kind of showing us different silos in which when put together in a future AAA game is going to be pretty remarkable. Thinking, for instance, high frame rate, very immersive control, SSD loading, instantaneous loading, all of those things put together is going to be awesome. So like it's becoming clear to me what it means to play a next gen game now. For sure. It definitely is. And I agree with you 100%. I was so wrong. I, I don't know how many times I have to reiterate this, but I was so wrong about frame rate for so long. I was just like, it does not matter. Like, why is everyone so obsessed with this? It just doesn't matter. And I think bouncing back and forth between the two for so long, even on PS3, where you can get games running at a high frame rate sometimes, and certainly sides for like Mega Man runs at 60 frames. But like, that's just expected. You don't even think about frame rates in 2D side scrolling pixel art games. We can get Hybroxia running like at fucking light speed if we wanted to. It has no resource draw at all. But playing games consecutively and consistently at that frame rate, you do start to realize when you go back that it's very hard to do. And that was like the instruction that I needed, I think. It was the real life instruction. But I did want to say, as a, 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 apart from the controls, I mean, I, I, a few of the other things that I do like what the game does is, first of all, I feel like there is an ode to Samus with Celine. I feel like the Metroid connection to this game is not quite there, but it kind of is. I mean, the, the doors remind me a lot of Metroid and certainly Samus's or I'm sorry, uh, Celine's body tight, like her skinny type with the, the big head and all of that with her helmet. I, I, I just got a lot of Metroid vibes, which I think is cool. Metroid is vastly overstated as a popular franchise. Uh, as an example, I think Spider-Man on PS4 has sold more copies than every Metroid game ever made just to put to put it in a context, which is nothing, which is nuts, but it's true. But we as gamers love Metroid and I've loved Samus from the very beginning. And my character that I've written, Sabrina, in our new games is very much drawn from Samus. The other thing that I wanted to say is that I think the game uses a really is beautiful use of colors. I was surprised by how dark the game is. It was the first HDR enabled PS5 game that I've played where I had to actually mess with the, the darkness settings and make it brighter because I couldn't see. Like I was like, I, that was half the battle. I was like, I, this game's so fucking dark. But I'm getting used to not making those adjustments I used to make on PS4. So I had to do that. But the use of, the, of colors is really beautiful. And the use of draw distance, while overstated, maybe is really cool. Like you're not playing a game where you hear the bullet come out of the assault rifle and it hits you. It's cool to see the different ammo types and they're just flying at you and you just move out of the way in real time and real space. And then a bullet will come faster from another enemy or instantaneously the game's tempo is therefore played in a really clever way. So that's the part that I really feel like I'm missing and I want more of and why I wish the game would just let me play it as opposed to all of the trappings that I don't want. Like, damn, this is awesome. Just put me in an arena with these enemies and let me play. Right. And like chase a high score. That's all I want. You know, so. But we do have to talk about the technical issues, which are significant. Andrew Soto wrote in and of course the difficulty as well, but he wrote in and said, hello, fellas. Hope you're enjoying Returnal because I sure as hell am. It took me a whole 15 minutes before I fell into actual romantic love with the game. As I write this, I've just completed the last biome and I'm still not ready to put it down just yet. A platinum shines in the distance. 
Leading up to today, there has been a lot of talk regarding the difficulty of the game as well as the absence of a save and exit function. The latter has caused the loss of runs due to game updates, crashes, and power outages. Though I personally don't have a problem with it, do you feel the barrier of entry is too great for the average gamer? I am surprised by how hardcore this game is. And the reason I'm surprised by that is because so is Demon's Souls. And Sony's really releasing like very hardcore games. Ratchet's going to come and, and kind of fix that, I think. But I was kind of surprised by how hardcore this game was because I'm like, wow, you're really not making very accessible games for your console right now. Like the only two massive exclusives are both incredibly high barrier games that many people, most of your consumers will not like and will not play. And so that was what was a little surprising where you kind of felt like with Resogun, for instance, Housemark was there to make a little bit more of an accessible and as hardcore of a game as you wanted it to be. And what's interesting is that they've, they, they've just been there at launch. They were there near launch with Super Stardust at PS3. They were there at launch with PS4. They were there near launch with PS5. But what do you think about the save issues and the technical issues? I was getting really mad actually online and blocked a few people, not because they said anything bad to me. I don't block anyone anymore. But they were so annoying because people are saying, like, I'm not having any problems. I'm not having any problems. You should just you're going to stop playing the game. because And I'm like, no, I am having problems. Why would I make that up? And I'm every time the game gets patched, I have problems. And they had to like I've never actually or not never, but it's very rare for a especially a first or second party studio to have to roll a patch back. I don't remember the last time that happened. So there are problems and, and I'm a little surprised by that. So there's a lot to cover here, but what about Andrew's inquiry do you want to ta uh, tackle? So in regards to the save and exit function, function, I've been thinking about this, and my guess the reason why they don't want to allow that, because some people are saying, well, they're just telling you to use rest mode. Why won't, why, like, it's no different than a, a save and exit. It's not asking for, you know, to be able to continually go back to that save. The idea is when you would die, that save, or when you would return you would just start from that point. It's not like a reusable save. But my guess is that theoretically people would be able to save scum with that in that you could make Definitely. a save, upload it to PlayStation Plus, and then if you die, you just download that save back and then you can continue the game. So I understand why, I guess, if that's the reason. I, I understand it. But at the same point, it's like if you demand that level uh, of dedication and the system is set up to auto update, you can't demand that of your players. Like it's not going to work, especially because dude, so many people I've heard where they'll, they'll do as it recommends in the game to pause and put it in sleep mode and then come back. And then it's just, it's fucked. It doesn't work anymore. So if you're going to ask that of your players and not provide this feature, then you better make damn sure that it works and it doesn't right now. Now, to be fair, there's this patch out. So they recalled the patch yesterday. And now as of seven hours ago on Housemark's Twitter, it, it's been reposted. So maybe it's getting better. But even if let's say they iron out all the patches, you still have the problem that you're telling your users that they should go into sleep mode and it's a system-wide function on the PS5 to auto-update games. So they're telling people to turn off a system function in, in order for their flow or whatever of the game to work. And that just, that's weird to me. 
Yeah, it's, it's more than weird. It's inexcusable. I, I agree with you. First of all, I'm really surprised by this in some way, but I'm also not. Housemark has had some pretty catastrophic problems with their games. People might remember Dead Nation. We Greg and I at IGN were the ones that found this bug and reported it. If you had a full friends list on PS3 of 100 friends, you couldn't play Dead Nation. In fact, I think after that, it was added to certification on PS3 and PS4 that you had to like auto like when a game's going through cert, you have to auto populate fake PSN friends list to make sure that it doesn't crash the game because Housemark has had weird problems like with their games at launch. And so it's not unprecedented. But you think that they would have put a lot of more work into it because I agree with you. If you're coming out and saying, listen, guys, we've made a very hardcore game. We're not going to let you save. The game is completely stable. You know, let's let's embrace the old school nature. I mean, I kind of liked it in a way. I remember playing NES games and SNES games and leaving them paused for days. And like if you came into the room with your friends and were running and stomping and it like reset the console. Like those were the day. I mean, those were the days and something that sucked. It kind of felt like that. And I was like, that's kind of cool. Like, but they're right in that people are going to save scum if they and break the game. And that's not the that's not the spirit of the game. And so you have to stop people from doing that. I don't know. I was thinking about Outriders and how it has no presence on my console, has no presence on it, like as far as a save file. It's all saved on their side. And I was thinking like an interesting solution would just be to do it the same way. If the game is connected to the Internet anyway, which it is, then just save everything on your end and let people have quick saves that can only be accessed from the game. So when you go back in, it says like resume from quick save. Okay, press X and that that save is gone. They, They just delete it, you know, and so there's no way for you to really do that. And so there's clever ways to do it. But I agree with you. If you're going to have something like this, you have to make sure your game is stable. And I can just speak from my own personal experience that when I started getting into flows, the game kept fucking up. I mean, it did. I, I had situations multiple times where I couldn't open doors, where like I couldn't pick things up. It's fucking annoying. And I was getting really annoyed that people were just like, just playing. It's like the game's broken. So shut up and stop protecting corporations. I am so sick of it. Why are you taking the sides of corporations? The only corporation you should be on the side of is Last Stand Media. That's right. William Sisto wrote in (laughs) with a final inquiry about this, and he says, hey, CCD, with Returnal getting good but not great scores for many media outlets, I'll also throw in that it seems to be selling not that great. Do you think this puts more pressure on Ratchet to be a great game and a flagship PS5 game, or does it give Ratchet more breathing room to stand out and be a potential Game of the Year candidate? So, Dustin, I promise we will return to this topic of Ratchet. I liked William's inquiry here because I think it actually is incredibly important. Now, Ratchet is going. I I said this about Returnal where I was like, I'd be surprised if it's not great. Well, surprise. I, I don't think it's like the greatest game in the world. So maybe I'm, I shouldn't keep saying these things. But Ratchet is going to, I assume, be very, very good. And I think it is going to be important because since Miles Morales, even though Miles Morales is not even a PS5 exclusive, it's on PS4 as well. It's the first truly accessible game and actually has the chance to be the biggest selling game for PS5 so far, which I think it will be. So does Returnal have any effect on Ratchet, its trajectory or its need for success? I don't I don't think so. I feel like I think it has to do with, like you said, that Returnal isn't a game that is for the the wide audience. It's one. It's kind of weird though because PS5 games are so limited right now. It's become a game that everyone is interested in, and I feel like maybe normally it wouldn't. But I feel, man, I feel like Ratchet. I think this game is really going to be a, a big one. 
like we said last week, you and I have not watched any of the state of play stuff. The the no. most I've gotten is just people gushing on Twitter about it, which Yeah, there's there's gifts of like a cityscape that I keep seeing, which is very, very beautiful. Very yeah, busy. Right. So man, I feel like Ratchet is just like I don't know. I I feel like it's gonna be the bestseller on the console for sure. Not that that's hard to do with so so few games right now as far as first party and PS5 only, but Yeah, it's it's tough because we don't have breakouts of Miles Morales' sales between like I'm sure it's selling better on PS4, but it's gonna be competing with that. But Returnal sales do seem soft. We'll see. It's anecdotal out of Britain because they do have those weekly charts. But we'll find out. I, I, I don't know. I really feel like this is hurting its ability to find a greater audience. You've got to come out of the gate with a viable product that works. There's just no excuse. There's just no excuse for it. I have no. some interesting anecdotal stuff about the physical sales is the theory I have is that Sony wasn't very confident that this game was going to sell very well at retail because here in my town i got mine on amazon side credit but ben went out to buy a copy he went to walmart they didn't have it stocked they said we think we have three in the system but we don't know where it is he went to target they didn't even have any copies at target he went to gamestop and they said we only have enough for the people who pre-ordered it which of it he like somehow ended up getting a copy anyway through gamestop but i posted this on twitter just to get a of you know hey is anyone else having problems getting copies of returnal there were a few that said yeah i walked into best buy no problem but most of them were people that said that they were going to stores and there were very few copies or there were none so either sony didn't expect people to want to go pick it up in stores or wasn't expecting for some reason didn't plan on a large print run so i don't know if that the case would be different in the uk but you got to wonder if you know if some it's someone, supply constraint. Yeah. I'm you gotta wonder if maybe the, the UK charts were like not quite right because maybe someone went to buy it in stores and then they couldn't find it, so they just bought it digitally. Yeah, you could be right there. I, I think we'll see with Ratchet if they flood the zone with copies of that game or not. If they don't, then I think it tells you that they're really trying to coerce people to just buy the games digitally. I mean I, Yeah. There there's no reason for them for they want you to buy the games digitally. They don't want sure. you to go to the store and buy the game. So it's conspiratorial, but it could be like, we're just trying to set a seed in your mind. So next time you just don't even bother. Just go buy the game from us. Mm -hmm. And there's actually a lawsuit that is being, I don't know if you saw, that's actually um, being floated a possible class action lawsuit against Sony saying that because they're the only sellers of digital games on their storefront and the only way to get codes is from them now that they have like a virtual monopoly. It's actually pretty interesting that people are starting to push back on corporations. And I think it's good. We should push back on companies break these motherfuckers up not sony i mean they're not even <laughs> yeah. anywhere big enough to worry about that but the other the other guys okay let's talk about some of the other stuff we're playing before we move on to the news here you, you're still playing re7 yeah well actually i just finished it yesterday and i was nice. surprised it took me less than eight hours to play through the whole campaign which i've done it before but i didn't remember anything so it's funny to see people complaining that resident evil 8 is too short because everyone didn't seem to be a problem. Hours is perfect. It's perfect. A right. AAA eight to ten hour yeah. experience is perfect. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So I I thoroughly loved playing through that again. If you haven't played it yet, you should do it. It's it's Definitely. in the the PS Plus collection. 
I believe. So there's no excuse. And RE8 is in the same line, right? I mean, they're all in the same line, but one takes place after the other, right? So you want to play RE7, I think, to play RE8. I would right. Assume. In in both games, you play as the wonderfully generic Ethan Winters. Yes. I, lo- I love the Japanese-isms of, the, <laughs> of Americans. And you see that actually in a major way in RE2, which I think is super cool, but in RE2 Remake especially. But I was thinking, I've played all the mainline Resident Evils except for 6. And I actually don't even know, because 6 was just had such a bad reputation. I don't even know where that fits in right. and I don't care yeah you don't need to it's it's not a big timeline thing to me at least I'm sure no, some people are so. crazy about it but oh yeah, yeah definitely the and then I'm, I'm still playing through near replicant I'm doing the second route now you go through and you play the games you have different perspectives and every time I play it I, I continually think it, it gets better and better it's definitely going to be in my uh game of the year list at the end of the nice. year for sure you played five times is that right I don't know for uh, near replicant. I don't know wh- how many there are. Yeah, because I, I was I, I thought someone was saying that for the platinum, you need to play it five times, and I'm like, oh god. I'm yeah. Gonna, well, know. not every playthrough is the full game. Mm. Um. So, so, like the second playthrough takes place many hours into the first playthrough. So. Oh, so it's kind of like Saga Frontier. It's 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 actually pretty interesting. Okay. Yeah. But we're still, uh, there's still a lot of people have asking me, uh, I haven't talked to you about this, but the plan is still to do a near replicant spoiler cast. No, definitely. Uh, but with, with, with who, Maddie? Yeah, with Maddie, for sure. Cool. So yeah, definitely. That's, that's in the works, but we're, we're taking our time with it. It's, it's come. Cool. So I brought it up earlier, but I'm still playing Outriders. I play it every day. I, I, I love that. <laughs> I love that game. I, I just play the expeditions by myself. And I just do them over and over again. And I'm not even like earning anything at this point. I'm just trying to like grind out the trophies. But it's just so fun. I just kind of shut my mind off and put on a podcast and just play it. I just love that game. And then I'm not going to talk about it here in too much depth. But I went back and played PS2's God of War. I played it on Vita this time. The last time I played it was on PS3. And Dagan and I, my brother, did an episode of Knockback, which is our retro and nostalgia podcast all about God of War. So that's up everywhere now on YouTube podcast services and on Patreon. You can go check that out. So it was cool to return to that game. And my short synopsis is Kratos is still a pretty terrible character, but you can really see how how much how important this game was. And I've probably been pretty hard on it, more hard than I should have been. That's pretty good timing with uh, the the Jaffe interview that you played that. So indeed, I I discovered the other day that because I was looking at his Twitter profile, one of the games that he was the I think gameplay director on was like this Mickey 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 Mania. And I realized I actually I have the Sega CD version of that. And so I like pulled it out and I saw his name in the in the the back of the booklet. So, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, he's it's he's uh, I hope he comes back and does more. I don't know if he will, but we'll see. We'll talk on the show. Now streaming only on Disney Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Does anyone here know the lyrics? Ruben! Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version. With four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney Plus. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. 
With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit All right, let's get into the news. It's time. There's quite a bit to get through. Number one, number one, I'm sorry. In a surprise move, particularly considering recent news, PlayStation has revealed that it has made a substantial financial investment into Discord and that the service will be integrated into PlayStation beginning in early 2022. Word comes by way of a posting on Sony Interactive Entertainment's official corporate blog. The blog posting under Jim Ryan's name kind of buries the lead. Sony has made a minority investment into Discord, which is still a privately held company still raising rounds of revenue as it grows before going public. As such, Ryan writes in part, quote, together, our teams are already hard at work connecting Discord with your social and gaming experience on PlayStation Network. Our goal is to bring the Discord and PlayStation experiences closer together on console and mobile starting early next year, allowing friends, groups and communities to hang out, have fun and communicate more easily while playing games together, end quote. This would partially explain the disappearance of PS PS4 services like communities and also possibly even explain the sudden destruction of high level buyout talks between Discord and, and interested suitors, including Microsoft. These talks only fell apart in recent weeks. Discord, founded only in 2015, has a staggering 140 million monthly active users and is a suite of communication tools in text, audio, and video format. The gaming community has been central to its growth and sustenance, and during the aforementioned buyout talks, it was valued as high as $12 billion. So I must say this right at the top. When Discord goes public, I'm all over Discord buying that stock, no doubt about it. I remember people talking about Discord and I don't even think I understood it at all for like three years. I just ignored whatever it was and it just became this massive force and I'm on it every day now. What do you think about this? Um, this acquisition, this it's not an acquisition, but this investment and the the kind of partnership of Discord and PlayStation, especially in the shadow of what appeared to be Microsoft aggressively trying to buy them. Right. I am. I'm, I'm thrilled just because I love Discord. I think it's a, a fantastic platform it's done a lot for us and on our community and i just love the fact that it's with the rise of crossplay right the the issue has always been that in-game voice chat is terrible and so a lot of people have moved to discord because the, the the call quality is just is so good so a big frustration for me and my friends playing games is that like Ben and I will be on PC, but our friend Brandon is on on PlayStation. And so he'll have his headphones on and he'll put his earbuds inside the headphones and have Discord on <laughs> his funny. phone just because it's it's that good, but it's not integrated into PlayStation. So there are millions of people out there that have done similar things in order to like get the best of both worlds. And so to see them come together is just going to be really really a fantastic thing for all the users as far as discord man as far as the when they go public i feel like this company is just the the sky's the limit because obviously it's been it started as a thing for video games and and gamers and they've they've had some not so successful aspects like when they tried to do the discord store you may remember that kind of got wiped off the face of the planet but I've seen more and more and heard examples of businesses using Discord because they prefer it to Slack. I've heard of schools using Discord for, you know, either communicating with them among the classroom, doing the classes themselves. 
and uh that just the the tech is is really good and i think we're just going to continue to see them them dominate and i'm just so glad that they didn't sell to microsoft because we've seen uh microsoft not be a, a good owner of other chat related companies like oh, skype, like skype. Yeah, yeah it's it seemed that was what was confusing to me like this is the kind of shit where where microsoft is like begging the government to get involved it's like you're gonna buy skype and then you're gonna buy discord there are just certain you can't like we've just let companies just get away with murder at this point like where it's like well, you can't just line up verticals like this this is totally what the antitrust stuff was 120 years ago it's just a different these are just different industries what I think is interesting, though, about this particular move is it it draws to the surface, I think, more of what Sony's strategy is, which is what I've been talking about recently, which is to make investments and not buy the cow. Right. I was reading about Discord. This was Series H funding. I don't know how much money these guys have collected. How That's an incredible amount of series. So to go at Series H and for Sony to be like, all right, we'll give you money now. And they're still not going public. As I understand it, Discord was somewhat offended by the offer of $12 billion. I think that's why they walked away. They're like, fucking $12 billion. We haven't even gone public. You know, like we know they're all going to make way more money than that. So I think they were kind of they went in the other direction. I, I almost feel like maybe it was a move to be like, fuck you guys. Waste our time for $12 billion. We'll just take a little bit of investment from your rival and then integrate with them uh, in some way. And I think it brings to the forefront Sony's Sony's made now two investments in Epic, right? They've made and Epic's interesting because Epic is still primarily owned. And we're going to talk about it in a little while by one man still owns a majority of Epic, which I still can't get over. I don't even know how that's like how he's just held on and not sold and just disappeared off the face of the planet in Tim Sweeney, of course. But so I feel like while Microsoft is going around making wholesale purchases and potentially complicating their pipeline, Sony is just laying foundations, financial foundations with second party studios, services, engine creators and all of the rest. And this creates a reason for the two companies to work together. Now that Sony is is financially invested in Discord, it makes every sense for them to use Discord as much as possible. So this has a massive benefit to Discord. So Sony's strategy is coming and it's being encapsulated, I think, in this in this purchase and is coming to the is coming more to the fore, which is why, again, the Haven thing is so stupid, because it's one of the only things that happened where it's like if you just waited six months, it could have fit into this whole strategy that it seems like you're laying out of not buying the cow. Sony doesn't have the money to buy Discord, even if they wanted to. So this was the only they don't even have enough. I don't cash on hand. I don't think they do that. So it's a it's a very wise purchase. It is a youth driven purchase. I think it keeps PlayStation relevant and it will be the format by which this hardcore discord discord fans will likely want to play their games like depending on how intimate the connection is and how different it might be on other platforms because I'm sure they want to be everywhere. So it's not like maybe PlayStation just gets the best form of it. But right. if I were them, I'd be desperate to be on other platforms. And if I were Sony, I'd be desperate to let them on other platforms because we all make money. So. We'll see what happens. But congratulations to all parties involved. Very surprised by that. Number two, it sounds like a PlayStation 5. It sounds like PlayStation 5. I'm sorry. We'll be getting a redesign in 2022, though it's nothing you should get too excited about as the move seems purely economic and is unlikely to affect either the console's look or end cost. Nonetheless, here's what's happening. Publication Digitimes published a report stating that Taiwanese firm TSMC is building a quote unquote new semi customized end quote six nanometer chip, which will be used in PlayStation 5 
as helpfully noted by website Push Square, Sony currently uses a seven nanometer custom chip with word that Sony intends to beat PlayStation 4's insane second year sales of 14.8 million units sold. They need to start getting more consoles into the wild. And this is a move that seems designed to help to do that. Nonetheless, Sony hasn't confirmed the report as of the time we're recording. I would highly doubt that this is false. But people that are getting excited about a true redesign are going to have to wait. They're not going to do that yet. That's when the price will drop. This is for them to make it, I think, cheaper and easier for them them to make it since they are selling these consoles at a loss. We thought that they were going to break even, but they've confirmed that they're losing money, I think, on hardware sales um, or at least breaking somewhat even, especially because they're not selling as many of them as they need to. So what do you think of this uh, report? You're more technologically minded than I am. Yeah, I I actually what's funny is that every once in a while I'll get really curious about how something's made. Like I love how it's made on YouTube. I'll go and watch those regularly. I'm just curious. Uh, I'm going to have to do some research is that they're currently using a seven nanometer chip and they're moving down to a six. I assume that would make it cheaper because when they make these processors, they make the giant wafer and then they cut them out. So if there's one less nanometer then you can fit more on a wafer maybe i would assume that's i would assume that's definitely something to do with it i mean we we talk about that with the, just the reduction in plastic footprint how much money is saved by by remaking the console in that way so right. when you're making millions you want to cut not cut corners but cut pennies where you can right i mean this has been happening since uh i think i mean even the nes Maybe not the any the Super Nintendo though. There's a lot of like internal revisions, and this has been important for uh, like the retro game community in that some of some Super Nintendos have better video output than others when you're getting into more of the the nitty gritty. So the thing you got to just be careful when you do this is that they are one to one when it comes to what the customer uses. So. We'll see. Yeah, I was reading about how PlayStation 4, which is true, like immediately went on underwent revision inside and you can find core PS4, you know, originals that are radically different inside. So I think this is just a step to that. This is not the PS3 Slim from 2009 or the PS4 Slim or anything like that. Don't get too excited. There's no reason to do that yet. They don't want to cut costs yet. Number three. Online sources have uncovered a very interesting trademark this past week. It appears Sony has filed for the Sunset Overdrive trademark. Not exactly a huge surprise, considering Sony purchased the mark's previous and only owner, Insomniac Games, in 2019. Indeed, this is almost certainly nothing imminent, though there's little doubt Sony and Insomniac would love to get Sunset Overdrive, a 2014 Insomniac-developed game, onto PlayStation. While Insomniac retained the IP, it developed the game for Microsoft's Xbox One platform using Microsoft's money in a one-off experiment between the two entities during Insomniac's voyage into the abyss moment. It later brought the game to PC in 2018. Microsoft Studios has the publishing rights to the original, though it's unclear how long or for or for how long or at what cost and future sequels can be freely made for any platform Sony chooses. However, don't read too far into it. This is likely Sony taking control of Insomniac's legal holdings as it continues to absorb it corporately. Jack Finning wrote into us, said, Greetings, Lords of the Last Stand. After reading that Sony trademark Sunset Overdrive, I'm wondering how likely it is we'll see this game on PlayStation in the future. I saw on Twitter Colin casting doubt on a supposed state of play leak announcing the series coming soon, but I would love to see it come out one day or continue on Insomniac's new home console and give the new audience a chance to experience it. Thanks as always for the incredible content. So thank you, Jack, for writing in. So I will note there was this leak that said that Sunset Overdrive was going to be announced for PS5 and then they were or PS4 and PS5 and then they're going to announce a sequel for PS5. 
that's not true. I mean, I can tell you that that's not true. You can I, I have reliable sources. And now I'm talking about the state of play stuff. I don't know if Sunset Overdrive is going to come to PS4 and PS5 at some point. I would imagine it probably will. But that it, it, the sequel and all that, I mean, you guys got to think about Insomniac. I mean, what, what, how many games do you want them to make? I mean, they, they can't make all these games. It's not possible. They're they just put Spider-Man Miles Morales out. Ratchet's being worked on in North Carolina. And now they are going to work on Spider-Man 2 and then maybe Resistance. And then maybe it's like uh, it's got to be cut off somewhere. I don't know that Sunset Overdrive. There's any interest in Sony pursuing more Sunset Overdrive. I imagine here that it's literally Sony just saying, like, we got to go gobble up these various IP. Like, we have to get the trademarks. We own them now. I, I really think it might be as simple as that. What do you think? Yeah, that sounds about right to me. That's I always wondered. Sunset Overdrive wasn't a huge seller, really. No, at not all, at all. Was it? It would have been huge on PlayStation. It just wasn't. It wasn't huge on Xbox. It's just not the right audience, I don't think, or at that time. Right. I could see. I mean, the the question, too, is that I've always heard things that Xbox owned like exclusive console rights to that game. And so Sony, they'd have to work out a deal with Microsoft to get it back. Yeah, that would be trivial. I feel like that would be very trivial at this point. And I also feel like that might be a finite thing. It happens where people, you know, we'll get Mass Effect. I mean, Mass Effect was published by Xbox Game Studios, the original. And it came, it just took like a long time, but it came to PlayStation. It actually came, Mass Effect actually came to PlayStation 3 after Mass Effect 2 and Mass Effect 3, which was funny. Yeah. Oh, I remember that. You got the, the compilation. It came on that triple pack, right? Yeah, like there was an independent disc for it, and then there was also a pack for it or a di- mm. and a digital version of it. They all connected with each other, but it was assuming that you would just wait and then play the original. And then and I actually think I accidentally leaked the uh, the PS3 version because I had a disc of it on my desk at IGN during oh. like a something so that was yeah that was interesting. all right let's see here this actually just happened and i'm not seeing too many people talk about it i think it's a pretty substantial move number four electronic arts has quietly purchased an independent canadian sports developer in a move similar to what rival 2k did when it purchased canadian golf team hb studios earlier this year as for ea their target is a team called metalhead and their specialty is baseball games they're known for the super mega baseball trilogy which is an arcadey spin on the game not unlike nba jam was for basketball The original game launched in 2014 was on both PS3 and PS4, while its two sequels came to PS4 with the last launch in the spring of 2020. In a press release announcing the deal, it's noted in part, quote, EA Sports and Metalhead are teaming up to grow the Super Mega Baseball franchise, as well as develop new gaming and sports experiences for players worldwide, end quote. Metalhead was founded in 2009. As for electronic arts and baseball, nothing has happened in well over a decade. EA's last baseball game was MVP 07 for PlayStation 2, which was an NCAA branded game as EA temporarily lost access to the MLB license to rival 2K. This acquisition acquisition clearly signals EA's intent to return to the space where it already produces incredibly popular options with football, soccer, and hockey. Remember, too, that EA gobbled up Codemasters in a bidding war with 2K, which gives it great control over racing games, too. Metalhead joins a pretty elite group of teams, which includes Bioware, DICE, Respawn, PopCap, Criterion, and others. Nathan Cermak wrote into us on Patreon about this. He says, hi, guys. I'm conflicted. EA has just acquired Metalhead Software, the studio behind the Super Mega Baseball series. This may seem like just a silly arcade baseball game at first glance, but I can assure you the actual baseball gameplay is amazing and the options to create and or customize your teams and players and uniforms are plentiful. The developers are highly active on Reddit and often put in multiple updates per game based on directly on player feedback. 
A seventh large update is currently in the works for their third game. Any chance EA will just leave them alone, but throw more money their way so they can get more games from them faster? Or is my favorite sports game about to become Maddenized? Cheers to you all. What do you think about this, Dustin? Do you think EA is going to use these guys to work their way back into the MLB license? Because that, that was my assumption. You can make arcade MLB games. You just need access to the IP. There's only one triple A simulation style baseball game, and that is the show. It's very similar to Madden with EA. So there's a way for them to get into this and start fucking around with the MLB again, which they were cut off from for a long time. So what do you think of this deal? Yeah, that makes sense to me in that you have MLB The Show, which is uh, kind of uncontested. And EA is looking at that. They're looking at Metalhead, which, according to Nathan, pretty good studio. They may see some potential there. And they see, a, a, a you know, a, an opportunity in the market. So that would make sense to me is to go over some of that MLB The Show market, especially when maybe I heard this wrong, but weren't people not as impressed with this most recent release of MLB the yeah. show? Yeah. So, I think that it's the first cross gen new version. It's not a huge surprise. I don't think. Right. That's not great. Well, not, not up to, not up to snuff. Not yet. Sure. I love this brewing renewed rivalry between 2K, 2K and EA. This is fucking great. Yeah. I, I think people are not paying attention to this. I mean, they're clearly going after each other in every way. It's, it's awesome. The Codemasters thing, remember, Take-Two was all ready to go. They were they offered $800 million and, and were accepted. And then EA came in and offered 400000 more, you know, like uh, a lot of money. So it's uh, it's no joke, like what's going on between these two entities. And uh, I'll be watching with with keen eyes because 2K is gearing up to compete within the golf space. EA is coming back into the golf space. 2K is now investing in, you know, smaller baseball games. Now EA is investing in smaller baseball games. They were both going after ra- the major ra- racing developer and publisher in the in the industry. I like this. This is good. Here's what we it. need, Colin. We need someone to come in and revive Blades of Steel in arcade. I love Blades of Steel. That's Konami. Yeah, unfortunately. Dude, yeah. that's like, honestly, prob- I don't like a lot of sports games. I love Blades of Steel. I can play that game any day. It's it's so good. Blades of Steel. Yeah, yeah. I, I love. Yeah, I, no, it's a great game. There was a few interesting hockey games early on. I even like Nintendo Ice Hockey with just the different oh. the different. There was a. You know that one? No. There's a Nintendo made and published ice hockey game on NES just called Ice Hockey, and you just select like different player types. Like it's like a fat guy and the skinny tall guy and the average guy, and you put them where you want, and it's it's pretty fun. I like it. All right, let's see. Number five. According to reporting from publication Bloomberg, there's even more tumult going on at Polish developer CD Projekt, the publisher slash developer behind the massively popular Witcher RPG series and 2020's beleaguered role playing game Cyberpunk 2077. Konrad Tomaskowitz, the director of CD Projekt's mega popular 2015 offering The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt, has been accused of bullying by other members of the studio and has resigned his post. What's interesting, however, is that an internal audit of the audit of the claims against him seems to have proved his innocence. He notes in an email to staff in part, quote, nonetheless, a lot of people are feeling fear, stress or discomfort when working with me. And then in brackets, I'm sorry for all the bad blood I have caused, end quote. Tomaskowitz has been with CD Projekt for well over a decade. He started as a tester and story designer on the original Witcher, original Witcher game in 2007 and rose to lead quest designer for its 2011 sequel before becoming the third game's director. 
He was also senior second director and head of production of Cyberpunk 2077, according to his Moby Games page. Such bad news continues to tank CD Projekt's stock price in Poland, though Bloomberg is quick to point out that other high-level employees there are reaping substantial financial benefits even in the wake of Cyberpunk 2077's disastrous rollout. Indeed, it's still not available to purchase on any PlayStation platform. Yet, Adam Badowski, who directed the game, will make a $4.2 million bonus for his work, while co-CEOs Adam Kaczynski and Marcin Nowinski will each make $6.3 million. CD Projekt notes that the average salary in the studio, I'm sorry, the average bonus in the studio will amount to $34,000 with $28 million paid out in total bonuses. That's three times the average income in Poland, by the way. So those are that's the argument I was making why Jason Schreier is such a little baby to come after me on Twitter, because I was totally right. I was like, just take the money and divide it by how many people are there. And this is going to be and I said it's going to be something like forty five or fifty thousand dollars. I'm sorry, it was thirty four thousand dollars, Jason. Little fucking baby. Anything to say about that? No, I what do you think about the fact that the internal audit showed that he did nothing wrong, but he left anyway? Yeah, it seems like he I I, I, it's kind of sad if if that's true, because it seems like he's just like people aren't comfortable working with me, clearly. And he was a they haven't really talked about it, but he apparently was the director of the new Witcher. So it's it's early, but not a good start for them. And I wonder if he'll end, uh, you know, Conrad Tomaskowitz. I wonder if he'll end up somewhere else. I assume he will. Poland and Eastern Europe's gaming scene is just blowing up. It's awesome. It's really awesome to see a lot of good stuff coming from in there from Ukraine. Well, 4A Games has moved to Malta primarily now, but Poland and, and others. It's it's great. It's cool to see for sure. Number six, in case you need reminding of just how big Fortnite is, the ongoing litigation between its developer Epic Games and mega tech corp Apple should be a great reminder. Indeed, documents have been leaking out left and right from the lawsuit that puts all sorts of things into perspective including just how much money Fortnite makes. According to internal Epic documents as relayed by website Kotaku, Fortnite made $9.1 billion in revenue in 2018 and 2019. Specifically, it made $5.4 billion in 2018 and $3.7 billion in 2019. And though that number continues to decrease, they made less than $3 billion on the game in 2020. It makes up a remarkable amount of Epic's revenue. For comparison's sake, Unreal Engine, which is one of the most important pieces of tech in the A and AAA space, only made $221 million in revenue in 2018 and 2019, with Epic Game Store pulling in a similar amount. This means that Epic is incredibly, and some would argue, dangerously reliant on a single product. Yet that single product is enormous, bringing in what would be a notable percentage of annual revenues for the platform holders with just a single game. What makes what makes things even crazier is that one man, Tim Sweeney, still owns a majority of the company all alone. So Tencent, the communist corporation, owns 40% of Epic, and small holders like Sony own the rest. First of all, what, what have you made about this? I, we don't get too deep into it because it's really not relevant here. But this lawsuit between Epic and Apple is great. I mean, it, it is through discovery and all that. There is so much shit leaking. And I know some of the people on these emails, which I feel bad about, like Geo Corsi's on a bunch of the emails. I don't know if you saw that. And uh, so it's it's weird. It's, these are private correspondence, but this is the way it goes. It's nothing like revolutionary. It's just cool to see behind the curtain a little bit. Like right. Epic, be, that one email to Geo where the Epic is like, we're not changing our mind. So just accept now, like our, our terms. It was pretty cool. Like it was right. I mean, it's pretty cool, you know, throwing around of your big dick energy and whatnot. Dude. So specifically, there's two two really interesting things that I find. First of all, is that I think there was an article on IGN that was explaining how the, the courts just simply weren't ready for the spying and the interest of uh, the games industry on these documents. So apparently, and I think it was yesterday, we've already seen 
documents have a lot more like redacted stuff like they've started to quickly adapt because they were pissing everyone off the second thing did you see this email um and this does involve geo because we talked about you know there's the whole crossplay thing where they let they laid out seven points of of what what epic will do for sony regarding crossplay that they were like we're gonna give you all this data this marketing data we're going to deeply integrate Sony's API into Unreal Engine. We're going to make Sony look like the heroes. We'll let you announce it however you want. They're going to brand our E3. All of this stuff that they laid out, seven things. But what's interesting, of those seven things, they didn't list any compensation for crossplay. So I'm assuming by connecting the dots, because another leaked document was how Sony is receiving compensation for what's considered lost revenue due to crossplay on Fortnite. So Sony, I'm guessing, got all seven of those things and said, oh yes, and one more thing. We would like, we would like a piece of that pie as well. So, you know, Epic came out and was like, here, we want to do this. Here's a silver platter. And Sony said, make it platinum. Like yeah. <laughs> they went yeah, one step well further. Said. Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, it's really interesting because a lot of people were like, well, fucking Sony. And I'm like, no, what they basically said was like, if you're playing on our platform and then going on your iPhone at night and buying everything and then using it in our game, we get no money and that's not going to happen. And then so Tim Sweeney, I think, explained that it's not quite as simple as saying, like, you buy something here, you buy something there. It basically kicks in some sort of algorithm where the money is just kind of spread around. And Sony was the only one to ask, apparently, which is it's like. You know, because people are like, Sony's getting paid for crossplay, and it's like, why? Because Microsoft was too fucking stupid to not ask for like some sort of financial compensation to play. Because in the well, email, so I think Geo himself wrote like, we do not understand what we benefit from this at all. I mean, they, they basically say like, what do we get out of this at all? And it's very interesting. People should go read the emails, dude. Here's the quote because I love yeah. this from from Geo, which I I feel bad. Obviously, you know, he's him. a listener of the show. He's a listener of the show. It's out here. So we got to, you know, we're reporting on it. But what he said in this email was, quote, as you know, many companies are exploring this idea and not a single one can explain how cross console play improves the PlayStation business. And it's it's basically just like we're, you know, it's, it is that's true. Some big dick energy right there. Yeah. It's like, yes, Microsoft is willing to do this cross play because they're in second place or even third place. If you want to consider Nintendo in this cross play uh, ecosystem. So they're like, yeah, like. How's it actually going to benefit us? Which I, I find really all this really interesting. It's great. People should go dig into some of the documents and the gaming community. They're going to di- dip through this fucking these documents in two seconds and put it all together. You probably wouldn't even need to hire a legal team if you let the people on, uh, you know, on these various forums and whatnot do their work. But another interesting document that leaked that has involved Sony and Microsoft is this number seven. It seems that Microsoft thinks pretty highly of Sony owned game. The Last of Us Part Two. Well, for the most part. And another cache of documents is scoured through by website IGN. An unnamed Microsoft employee writes in part, quote, The Last of Us Part Two is the exceedingly rare video game where it accomplishes in moving forward the art of narrative storytelling in video games as a medium ultimately outweighs whether or not everyone likes it or even has fun playing it, end quote. He or she noted in part that the game is, quote, absolutely best in class in basically every area. And the overall presentation is significantly ahead of anything that other teams have been producing on console and PC, ellipsis. We were frequently stunned by the quality of the game's visuals, something that seldom happens these days, end quote. The game thus marks, quote, the evolution and expansion of what storytelling and interactive entertainment can be, 
Those things ultimately matter less than how incredibly well Naughty Dog has crafted and delivered the story that they wanted to tell, end quote. If there was a bad point, it was gunplay, though. Quote, Naughty Dog still can't seem to make decent gun camp combat, combat in any of their games, and this one is no exception, end quote. Very interesting to see. There is opposition research at all three of the major studios, and they focus only on their competitors and see what they're doing. And it's really interesting to see how they feel about Sony's biggest game last year. I was reading into this a little bit more than I think some people were, though, which was they're talking about what's what presumably whoever wrote this is talking about what Microsoft and Sony are doing from the knowledge of what Microsoft is doing right like behind the scenes. And they're saying significantly ahead of anything that other teams have been producing on console and PC. That's not something that's being said in a vacuum. You would assume that's being said with some knowledge, some foreknowledge of what is being made internally. And they're still saying that. So I feel like it's actually not a great sign for Microsoft to be writing like that because they're not just it's not just a dude on a form. It's a dude that understands what's going on behind their own curtain. Am I reading it right? That makes sense to me. I mean, you got to wonder. Yeah, I don't know. I think about video game publishers and they hire writers to do mock reviews. Mm -hmm. I've known many people that don't have done those. So maybe it's a possibility that the person wouldn't be aware like they just hire someone who does almost like a reviewer that would do research but i don't know maybe maybe not either way though i do find this is another glimpse behind the curtain thing like any any good company i would say does research on their competitors i mean sure we, we i regularly look at what other people in our space are doing to see how well they're doing what's effective what's ineffective that's just that's good business. That's that's being astute of of the the space you're in. So certainly it's uh like it's funny because when I saw this this document come out, it's obvious that this thing would happen. But I never thought about it before, I guess, for on this level. Well, hopefully more of these documents come out. I think we've probably seen all the interesting stuff at this point, but we'll keep an eye out. Number eight. Only weeks after being revealed as a participant, Konami has bowed out of E3 2021, which, as we reported several weeks ago, is an online only affair. In a brief posting on its social media channels, the once beloved Japanese publisher said the following, quote, due to timing, we will not be ready to be present at E3 this year, or I'm sorry, we will not be ready to present at E3 this year. We want to reassure our fans that we are in a deep development on a number of key projects, so please stay tuned for some updates in the coming months. While we are not participating this year, we have great respect for the ESA and know that 2021 will be a great success. We will continue to support the ESA and wish it the best uh, to all participants at this year's show, end quote. You'll note that while Konami voices support for the ESA, it doesn't say it'll be back at E3 in 2022. That's why it's interesting that the ESA's own statement says in part, quote, we support our partner Konami's decision to not participate in E3 this year and are excited to see what they'll be announcing in the future and when they're ready to do so. We can't wait for their return to E3 in 2022, end quote. However, that news has been gratefully overshadowed by the inclusion of four more major participants. Square Enix, Sega, Gearbox, and Bandai Namco. This really only leaves Sony and Activision as the notable absences as far as big publishers are concerned. The digital-only E3 2021 is set to return, uh, I'm sorry, set to run from June 12th through June 15th, and will also include Capcom, Ubisoft, Take-Two, Warner Brothers, and others. All of this news comes on the back of word across the Atlantic that rival game show the German Gamescom will be reverting to an online only uh, presence after preliminary plans to have a limited person or uh, in-person event in August of September or September later this year. I am butchering that. Sorry. So this is interesting. I mean, I, 
my hope is that Konami is really working with Sony on some of their games and maybe they just don't need to show anything. I know they're doing their own thing, too. They have started investigating and I think actively sourcing and publishing games from Europe, specifically like more A and indie style games as they kind of start flexing their muscles again. I think Konami is coming back into the space. I just don't know how they they have so many great IP. Everyone must be eager to see more from them. But I, I have this theory that they're working with Sony. I don't know if it's true or not. And they're the most conspicuous absences is Sony and Konami and now, you know, Activision, of course. What do you right. think? I mean, I've heard some things, but I, I it's definitely Konami's definitely coming back. I think they're going to do it in a way that makes sense for the modern Konami in that I would expect a lot of license deals just because they're 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 not really in the video game market anymore in the way that we think of it they're they're much more pachinko focused we've we've talked about this before that they have like health centers there's konami health centers in japan yeah it's crazy when you're in japan like you you're on the train and you just pass huge buildings with massive konami logos on them but they're just they're gyms right (laughs) i mean and also konami uh their their presence in the united states if i'm not mistaken they also do like there's pachinko in japan but i think they also make like slot machines yeah they do if you go to vegas you can see like metal gear and all in yeah definitely oh man i would i would try that i mean obviously it sucks but it's also you i would have to try metal gear slot money man i mean they want to make money i I think i think it's kind of smart i don't know if they intended it dustin but i think it's kind of smart that they went away for a little while like people were so mad at them after metal gear solid 5 that they basically disappeared after that game. I mean, that game sold really well. They did do Metal Gear Rising and um, and or Survive rather and all that other stuff. So and like they did a random Contra game, but they've they've largely just disappeared. And I, I'm excited. My real hope is that they've I really want them to give Castlevania to Sony because I think Sony would do it right internally. I think they can get even even if it went to from or something, it would be cool. So I'm I'm very eager to see what happens. And maybe we'll do like some sort of video or something one day or a podcast where we can go through their IP and see who would be best suited for it. Yeah. Cause you know, you have everything from Contra and Bomberman to Metal Gear and Castlevania and Contra and Pro Evolution Soccer and Winning Eleven. And I think they own a lot of stuff. All right. Oh, Winning Eleven is not them, I don't think. Okay. Uh, number nine. Activision has finally confirmed the developer of this year's Call of Duty game, which is, as was both rumored and expected, Sledgehammer. The Activision-owned studio is back at the helm of their own Call of Duty after losing their previous slot in the rotation in 2019. It was at that time that Sledgehammer was put into a support role, working on both 2019's Modern Warfare, which was led by Infinity Ward, and 2020's Black Ops Cold War, which is a co-production between its other sister studios, Raven and Treyarch. This Call of Duty, which is still untitled, should be released on schedule this fall, according to our report on website IGN. That, too, would make sense since you'd have to go all the way back to 2004 for the last year there wasn't a Call of Duty game. In fact, since Infinity Ward created the first Call of Duty game back in 2003, 2004 is the only year there hasn't been a core release. However, Call of Duty being so core and central to publisher Activision's profits comes at a cost. As reported by website Eurogamer, Activision has put its studio Toys for Bob on development duty for Call of Duty Warzone, its popular free-to-play offering. Toys for Bob was the developer of the massively popular Star Control games in the early 90s, through, though in its Activision days, it has primarily been working on children's games, including Skylanders and Crash Bandicoot 4, It's About Time. All of Activision's core teams, High Moon Studios, Beanox, Sledgehammer, Toys for Bob, Raven, Treyarch, and Infinity Ward, 
are all now working on Call of Duty. You'll recall that other notable Activision teams have since been folded into Activision Blizzard's other studios, including more recently Vicarious Visions and a couple of years ago Neversoft. Brent Lindquist wrote into us about this. He says, hey, fellas, Activision has pulled both Vicarious Visions and Toys for Bob away from the Legacy Series entries this year in favor of more high profile fare like Diablo and Call of Duty, respectively. Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 and 2 and Crash 4 are both critical and commercial successes. And I'm wondering if you guys think there might be a chance that these developers could return to those series after they pitch in on bigger forthcoming Activision projects. As always, thanks for the show. Sadly, I think those studios are gone now. I mean, they exist, but I, I don't know how you would put someone on, on Call of Duty and then just remove them from Call of Duty. I don't know that we see that happen very often. What do you think of this? This was I mean, this is not surprising, but it kind of sucks because, as we noted, Vicarious Visions was basically given to Blizzard. So they're gone. Right. So this is strange. I don't I don't it kind of sucks because I feel like Activision seemed to be learning a thing or two about how to diversify a little bit. And maybe they're realizing that they don't need to have their own studios do that, which it could be. And maybe they just like we want all of our teams working on our core product, but it's just it's boring. What do you yeah. So the thing about Crash that I was wondering is that he said in this comment that Crash 4 was a commercial success. And I don't know if that is the case. To my understanding, I mean, it sold like right now. This There's an article from November, 20, uh, November 2020 about uh, it's selling half a million digital units. There's other articles saying that it didn't sell very well. But it all comes into the context of did it sell well for Activision? standards right a company that is wanting to sell millions and millions right and i i can say with some level of confidence that there's no way it's sold anywhere near as well as the insane trilogy and i think that that's kind of their own fault by remaking three games putting it in one package and selling it for 40 and then making a new game that's just one game and selling it for 60 whether or not you know you can get into the minutia of like how many hours of gameplay or whatever but from a, a base level consumer that looks at that, they are kind of like, hmm, it's a little weird. So I think that that $60 price point probably scared away more people than uh, you would think. So I don't know. I, I saw some rumors a few weeks back that this call 2021 Call of Duty from Sledgehammer is not going well. And that there's which is, been... the, which is the second time that's happened to them. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so it could be a, a possibility where Activision's thinking, we got we to gotta save this game. We got to get as many people on this or we got to move some people around because I think Toys for Bob, they specifically said they're moving them over to Warzone. Yeah. That's the thing right now is that Call of Duty, they have a lot of, of plates spinning right now. Uh, they have Warzone, which constantly demands new updates, new seasons. You know, that's that's a whole that's hundreds and hundreds of de- developers on that project alone. And you're trying to release a new game annually as well. And on top of all of that, we have Sledgehammer, which from the outside looks to be a little bit of a, a problem child in the fact that I think so. their game got got tossed out and in favor the uh, Call of Duty Black Ops Cold War, which I don't think, at least it to me, didn't feel rushed, but there was definitely a kind of a, a change up pretty late. Well, Raven was, yeah, Raven was promoted basically, right. and, which was awesome because I fucking love Raven going back to, you know, um, Singularity. But and before that, I mean, they made an awesome X-Men game and others. But 
yeah, it's, it is interesting. It does seem like Sledgehammer was demoted and then put back into the rot- rotation, and we'll see if they have what it takes to deliver, because obviously Infinity Ward and Treyarch are just much more well-oiled machines. Infinity Ward is not the same studio it always was, but sure. they did create Call of Duty, so the fact that they're still making those games is cool, and I was reading in their Activision financials too, Dustin, that you would think Warzone and Mobile, their call, two Call of Duty offerings, would be distractive to their core product, but they were saying that like they're actually selling way more copies of the 60 or $70 game now because of these free to play and these mobile offerings like Jesus Christ. Like I don't get why I, I like call of duty, but it's like, why is this so big? Yeah. Why is it so big? There, there are so many games. It's so generic. I like call of duty. I, I'm not one of those people. I do like call of duty, but it's so generic compared to so many of the other shooters out there. Number 10, the MPD group, the American firm that tracks video game software and hardware sales in the United States released interesting data concerning star Wars games considering it was recently the May the 4th Star Wars holiday. Indeed, the MPD group released the top 10 best-selling Star Wars games in the United States from the beginning of 1995 through to the present day, albeit without hard numbers. The best-selling games were in order. Star Wars Battlefront, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, Star Wars Battlefront 2, Lego Star Wars The Complete Saga, The Force Unleashed, Battlefront 2 from 2005, Lego Star Wars 2 The Original Trilogy, Lego Star Wars Battlefront from 2004, and Shadows of the Empire. Each and every one of those games is playable on PlayStation hardware from PS2 and PSP to PS3 and PS4, except one game, Shadows of the Empire, which came exclusively to N64 in 1996 before being ported to PC the following year. I fucking loved that game when I was in middle school. Oh my, I love that game so much. It's really interesting that that is the 10th best-selling Star Wars game. Yeah. I'm surprised by that. Did you ever play that game? No, I'm actually, I'm really surprised that that's there and not Star Wars Jedi Knight 2 or Jedi Knight Jedi Academy. Shout out to both of those games because I loved those games when I was a kid. There are a few games that are missing. I I think some of them would have been out around the time that they started counting or a little bit before, but like Mm. X-Wing versus TIE Fighters on here. Also, although I don't know how they were counting PC sales, but... I was surprised also by like no no love for Super Star Wars, which was pretty big on Super Nintendo and no KOTOR, which oh. was actually authentically surprising and no KOTOR. Yeah. But it is interesting. I mean, we we give EA shit, but the three best selling Star Wars games of all time came from EA. True. Battlefront, Battlefront 2 and Fallen Order. So these are crazy times we're living in. I wonder also where that Lego Star Wars game from Traveler's Tale that we've been waiting for for a long time is going to slot in because that game looks dope. I'm going to buy that for sure. Yeah. Number 11, in an unexpected surprise, mobile and PC gaming hit Among Us is coming to PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 5, meaning it will soon be available on virtually every major gaming platform, both home and mobile, that exists. Word comes by way of the official PlayStation blog, which notes that the game will launch on both platforms later this year, which is nebulous. But the game appears to be an intact version of the four to ten player online game from the small studio known as Inner Sloth. Among Us first came to iOS and Android in mid 2018 and to PC later that year, but didn't become a phenomenon until early 2020. It came to Switch in late 2020 and is also coming to Xbox platforms. Indeed, the game became so popular that the intended sequel for it has been canceled so that the original can be updated and refined. The PS4 and PS5 versions will benefit from these ongoing revisions. I've never played this game. My nephews are really into it, or they were. I don't know if they still are. Are you a fan of this game? This news, by the way, is a little bit old. It happened right after we published the last episode. I've played it, and I had a good time playing it, but I don't have any desire to play more of it. In fact, I'm kind of surprised that it's still hanging on in popularity. 
I, I sort of expected this game to be sort of like PUBG in that I expected another game of a similar style that was much better to come out and replace it. Just because in Among Us, like a whole thing is you're going around the ship and you're doing tasks and someone's going around killing people. The tasks you do are not fun. Like they're they're stupid and often, sometimes frustrating. Maybe they fixed it and, and changed it since I last played, but... You know, Among Us, big hit. They're hanging on. I'm I'm kind of surprised it's a little nebulous release date because I feel like I'm not a game developer. I don't know, but it seems like this game could easily yeah, just like, be pushed over really quickly. But Yeah, and you think you'd want to be kind of urgent right. with it. But. Yeah. Number 12, Sony has revealed this month's new notable PlayStation Now offerings, and it's a pretty nice selection of games. For starters, Team Ninjas and Tecmo Koei's surprise hit PS4 console exclusive Neo will be enjoying the service. Are joining, I'm sorry, the service. Neo first came to PS4 in 2017. Also joining the service is the Spike Chunsoft developed Bandai Namco published Jump Force, the hugely popular crossover fighter that first launched on PS4 in 2019. The third notable addition is 2020's Dotamu developed and published old school brawler Streets of Rage 4, which is fucking awesome. While Neo wasn't given a takedown date, Jump Force leaves the service on August 2nd, and Streets of Rage 4 will leave the service on November 1st. And then finally, a wrap up number 13. Website Push Square reports platformer Wonderboy, Asha, and Monster World comes to PS4 on May 28th. Action-adventure title Stonefly comes to PS4 and PS5 on June 1st. Cartoon Rally Racer Art of Rally comes to PS4 and PS5 sometime this summer. And Flashback 2, a sequel to the 1992 action game Flashback, will be coming to both PS4 and PS5 in 2022. The website also reports that documents emerging from the Epic Games vs. Apple litigation currently underway indicates that Epic-owned developer Psyonix will indeed be bringing its major PS4 hit Rocket League natively to PlayStation 5, though at an undetermined point. Website Gamatsu reports that action game Astalon Tears of the Earth comes to PS4 on June 3rd. Horror game Observer System Redux comes to PS4 on July 16th. First-person action game Opsilov End of Gods comes to PS4 and PS5 this summer. Rhythm shooter BPM Bullets Per Minute comes to PS4 this summer. Both 64-player Super Animal Royale and side-scroller Blast Brigade versus the Evil Legion of Dr. Creed will be coming to PS4 and PS5 by the end of the year. Action shooter Shadow Warrior 3 is coming to PS4 later in 2021. And action RPG Made in Abyss Binary Star Falling into Darkness is coming to PlayStation 4 at some point in 2022. That can't get any more weeby sounding if it tried. Nope. Shout out to BPM. Really cool. Check that yeah, game out. Yeah, it looks out. great. Definitely looks great. All right. Tradition dictates that we end every episode of Sacred Symbols with six questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas from the audience. We'll begin with Callan Wilson, who wrote into us on Patreon, and he says, Greetings, CDC. There was some controversy this week over whether a reviewer needs to have finished a game before giving it a score. Obsidian famously did not earn their bonus for Fallout New Vegas because it earned an 84 on Metacritic rather than the 85 their contract required. I now can't help but wonder how many of the reviewers actually play to the end. In my eyes, any reviewer that has been given a game before finishing it has a negative impact on developers, maybe even to the same extent as mandatory crunch and overtime. We've all played games that were great, but soiled themselves in the ending or are hard to push through, but redeem themselves by the end. I think the least we can expect of a reviewer is to finish a game or disclose from the outset that they have not. What are your thoughts? Am I completely off base here? So this is a conversation that's been happening online over recent days. I've been participating in it. I'll talk in a minute, but uh, I'm wondering what your take is on this whole controversy about just to kind of encapsulate it for people, a lot of bitching and whining as far as I'm concerned about the act of being a critic. I got to play a game for 60 hours. It's like, well, that's what you do. You play video games and you fucking write reviews on them. What do you want? What do you want? I don't right. understand 
and I was saying this to Ryan McCaffrey on Twitter and Lucy O'Brien's chimed in. Thankfully, both of them saying like, this is nonsense. Of course, you beat games. But where it's like th- this one guy, Mike Diver, who I invited on Sacred Symbols Plus and he declined, who works for Gaming Bible or I don't some some site where it was like there should be exceptions to the rule. And I think there are. And I'll go into that in a moment. But I feel like people are so flippant about what this stuff really means and the effect it has on other people and are so lazy. I don't understand when laziness became a virtue. When did laziness become a virtue? Oh, I got to play a video game. Well, you know what? Some people have to go to the fucking steel factory, the steel mill. You know, some people have to go sit at a at, at a convenience store for 12 hours and get treated like shit or stock shelves. Shut up. I am so sick of it. I have worked blue collar jobs and I have worked white collar jobs and I would never want to go back to the blue collar jobs. I'm proud that I worked them. Some of the finest people I ever knew I worked at those jobs and taught me a lot about myself and a lot about work ethic. But somehow when you get into the white collar industries, you start getting a lot of bitching and whining. If you don't want to play video games and don't write about them, then get out. Get out. Dustin, what do you think? Um, so I feel like it's a it's complicated and it's not in my mind. It's weird. Like, for me, you said there are examples of games that you don't finish uh, because they aren't finishable games. And I think that makes sense. I feel like for a, a big, if you are big site and you are, you know, getting paid and your reviewers are relying on you for this kind of information, then yes, there's absolutely no excuse. I feel like in other sense, though, sites, especially smaller sites, can decide how they want to dictate and do their reviews. And I think that if it's properly disclosed that that's part of how you did your review, then I can understand it, I guess. But yeah, on, on a on a big critic level, for sure, when we're talking lots of money being exchanged and lots of people relying on your site for for reviews, then, yeah, there's definitely no excuse. Like if, if this is your nine to five job is to like, OK, your job is to review this game. We're paying you. This is your livelihood. Yeah, you better finish it like that's that's important. I think the thing that I want to talk about with Mike on here and you didn't want to show up. So I'll just say what I need to say without him rebutting it is his whole thing was like, we get games too close to embargo and we don't have time to beat it. And it's like, then don't hit the embargo. The embargo is not a death sentence. I don't understand. And and then it was I, I tweeted at him and I'm like, well, is it because your business is so reliant on hitting the embargo? If that's true, then your site not might not be very relevant. If, if people just want to pop in only the day an embargo lifts and has no interest otherwise in what you say, then you're not really giving any relevant feedback that people are seeking out. That's why I feel no rush about getting through any of my games, because I know people want to know what we have to say. I'm not trying to be mean, but when you're calling into doubt the whole process, I've reviewed hundreds of games, like really reviewed them at IGN. And I was calling out certain things. I, I, I haven't talked too deeply about it, but here's the thing as a critic. When I was a critic, there are review scores I regret. I think I, for instance, overscored PlayStation All-Stars. I think I underscored the 2014 Wolfenstein game. Two examples, right? But I look at the co- the content of those reviews and I'm like, well, this is fine. You're just kind of putting an arbitrary score on things. But then there are reviews where I'm like, hmm, you know, out of the hundreds I think about where I'm like, there are reviews I wrote where the thesis of the review was that I could not play it. 
you know, like where I was like, I can't beat it. Like, and two of them came to mind and people can go read about them because it's what the review is about. The first is Amy on PS3 and the second is a game called Under Siege, which was an RTS. And it is so Under Siege was so hard when it came out that they had to patch it to make it easier. And my review is about how I could not play it. I'm like, this game is so hard. That is the thesis of the review, right? That's different. The example I use is you have to just be straightforward. I think about when I reviewed Tales of Exilia 2, I think, and I reviewed it after 40 hours and I put into the thing. I'm like, I played it for 40 hours. I think I've seen enough. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, like, what is this game going to turn into? I, I'm familiar with Tales at this point to know that it's not going to nothing's going to happen. And I was comfortable doing that. But even then, I'm like, you know what? I probably should have just beaten it. And so mistakes were made along there as well. But by and large, I I mean, almost always beat the games that I that I reviewed. And like I said, you can't beat certain games. Sometimes they're like, you know, persistent arcade games. Uh, I didn't I didn't play games like this, but MMOs, you can't really. I remember that we used to do reviews in progress for that sports games where you're just playing seasons. I mean, there are examples, but I just am disturbed by the flippancy that people basically admit. No, I didn't. I didn't beat the game. I mean, there are critic old critics out there being like, yeah, I, I played, you know, nothing of this game. And I'm like, that's embarrassing. And I encourage people and encourage people on Twitter and encourage people. If you want to know if I really play games or not, just go look at my trophies. They're available for you to look at. I play almost everything on PlayStation. So they're all there. I'm not playing 17 games a month, but you'll see that I'm diving into a couple of games or a few games a month really deeply. And and the trophies tell the tale. And it's no wonder that so many of these people hide their trophies and achievements. No wonder. Because because when I said on, on Dustin, I'm like, People should just go look at trophies and they're like, well, not everyone cares about trophies. And I'm like, that's not the point. The point is, is that when you beat a game, you get an achievement or a trophy and that will tell you if they beat the game or not. I'm, I'm very disturbed by the trickle down of this. This guy is wrong. And I was really relieved to see a lot of people I respect, the Ryan McCaffrey's, the Lucy O'Brien's and others saying like Lucy said something like I have categorically never reviewed a game at IGN that I didn't beat. So you can just tell about the different quality of people, right? Lucy's a high quality critic. This Mike Diver guy is a fucking hack frankly. Yeah. Right. Like, I mean, that's just hack. That's unless it is the thesis. It is the point. It is the purpose. The purpose of my Amy review is to say it is so bad. This game is so bad. I refuse to play it anymore. That was the thesis of the review. Right. Right. So it's what do you think? I think that the so the embargo thing is a a complicated scenario for, for multiple levels, because I think that the one thing I will strongly disagree with is that there are reviewers that people really care about but they they know that putting out a review past embargo is just a death sentence for for example uh acg carrick which when you're talking about a solo entrepreneur who makes videos to survive uh, which he also has patreon but he's mainly funded through youtube i don't want to speak for him this is just me thinking about his business from my perspective Doing a review past embargo is a bad business decision for him. And people do really care about what he says, but, um, and he has fans that will, you know, of course he's going to get views on a video past embargo. And I think this also would apply to Maddie, but he's not going to get the, he's not going to catch the, the, the YouTube wave, which is a lot of how he, he makes money. So I can understand that aspect of it isn't is it an excuse for not finishing the game and providing a subpar review no i don't know that's just that's just a different flip side of it it's like a very unfortunate reality with youtube that things are so 
keyword driven and so based on a time and place for these people that primarily i mean we're we're in a very lucky position that we can we can post a near replicant spoiler cast which that's also different because we do it on our patreon exclusive show but we can do it weeks later and it doesn't affect our our bottom line we're we're living you know in a totally different world than some of these other uh critics that a lot of people do care about yeah, I mean, that's true, but I, I would, I mean, my whole take with Carrick is I would argue that he is one of the, I mean, he feels like or does need to, in the nature of his business, more hit these embargoes would be quick, but I would argue he's one of these guys that could wait, you know, the Angry Joes and all those kinds of guys where people just wait. He's, he's respected enough where I'd wonder, I don't, I'm not telling him what to do with his business. He can do whatever he wants. He just freelances for us, but where it's like, I wonder if you just waited and posted a week later, like. I feel like you still would get your people. I feel like people still care about what you have to say. We've it has been proven time and time again. There is a delineation between those that people care a lot about and those that don't, I guess. And I feel like we have a pretty group, good group of people. Maybe I'm biased, but a group of people here at Last Stand that people do care about. And that's why I'm so happy to be detached from that world. Like as far as no, I don't have to deal with publishers, no embargoes, no NDAs, no builds. No. Oh, my God. It's awesome. I love it. And that's all because of you guys out there. So thank you. All right. Turd Ferguson wrote in, said, hey, guys, with PlayStation's focus being on blockbuster games, where does that leave Pixel Opus? Are they in danger of being shut down or absorbed into another studio? After all, they are an indie sized studio who have made games that didn't sell well. And most people don't even know they're a part of the first party family. So this is true. This is weird. I don't know what the hell is going on with Pixel Opus. For people that don't know, Pixel Opus is a Northern California based team. There may be 10 people or 12 people at the team. And they made Entwined in 2014, and then they released Concrete Genie in 2019, which was a bigger game. Entwined, you might remember, was a game that was revealed at E3 that year in 2014 and available immediately on PS3, PS4, and Vita. It was uh, it was interesting. It wasn't very good. Concrete Genie, I also didn't think was very good. But the thing about this team that's interesting is they're a team that Sony intentionally made to try to mimic that game company. And if you read about them, the nine core members of the team that were formed with Entwined were all students that were invited to create a team together working out of Sony San Mateo space. So my assumption is, is that they are very small and pretty much completely inconsequential and that their games make probably very little money, but cost almost nothing. So we would have heard, I think, if they were going to close down after Concrete Genie by now, it's been a while. My assumption is that they're working on their next game. They haven't been shut down. But it is worth noting that Sony does shut studios down still. Manchester Studio, which never even got to make a game, was shut down last year, as people might recall, pretty silently. Are you a Pixel? Do you have you played either of Pixel Opus's games? I think I played a little bit of Entwined, but not Concrete Genie. I'm just amazed right now. I was just searching them and I'm on their Twitter account. Not only are they not verified, but they have under 10,000 followers on Twitter. So very low profile. Are they are they active? Uh, Yeah. I well let's see I'm trying to figure out when they're most there it seems like their account has really turned into mostly a retweeting account okay yeah. their, their last tweet was that I can actually find a date March 22nd 2021 so decently active um and people have to remember some, that I'm sorry go ahead. I was gonna say there's been some retweets since then as well but I was just gonna say people have to remember that Sony had a very fortuitous experience with that game company down in Santa Monica studio they incubated them for three games and then they went away and and Frankly, I don't think anyone really cares about that game company anymore. You know, Sky, no offense. No one seems to really care about. No, I mean, I think Sony yeah. was part of the engine that made that work. The patience, the money, 
And then they tried it again. You'll remember that they tried it with Giant Sparrow. That only then they they signed them to a three game deal as well. And they released them after one game and even let the second game that they were funding go. That was Edith Finch, which was originally a PlayStation game. And so I think Pixel Opus is just another one of those efforts to attract talent. The guys that are on the studio mostly come from Carnegie Mellon, so they're very smart. And I have no problem them just percolating. I do agree, though, that they don't fit amongst teams of I would say every other team that Sony has is over 100 people. And this team is maybe 10 or 12. So it is interesting. Something that I was just thinking about Pixel Opus is that they're such a small team and Entwined was felt like a a small game, not in a bad way. No, I, and, I liked what they did with it, just announcing it and releasing it. I thought that was cool. Right. And and they went a lot bigger for Concrete Genie. Some Sometimes I think, like, would it be more effective to, instead of trying to build a bigger game that's more like a, a traditional, we'll say, AAA light, so to say, something like that. I mean, it's more, it's double A still, but you know what I mean. W- would it have been more effective for them to stays smaller and make a really really effective smaller game than like something in between yeah concrete genie was weird i i it was it was cute had a lot of spirit i I wasn't that into it though but when you have a team that's small it's interesting i mean sony this is still a spiritually sound sony because we were talking about activision earlier about how like pixel opus would never be tolerated in activision right like because and i mean and they're two different publishers but it's worth noting that concrete genie probably did make a profit but you're talking about a game that maybe cost three or four million dollars to make and maybe Sony made another four or five million dollars in profit. That would be like unacceptable and meaningless to most major corporations. They'd be like, it's not fucking worth it at all. Like, just get out of here. The fact that Sony's just being like, eh, is kind of nice. Right. But I think part of it is because that game company got away. It didn't work with Giant Sparrow, which they never fully incorporated. And so they grabbed these guys from the very beginning. And people should go read about Pixel Opus. They're they're interesting. I, I just I would like to see them do something. I'm sure they will do something totally different this next time. And it'll be a PS5 game, obviously. Maybe PSVR. Concrete Ooh. Genie was a VR game. Jason Green wrote in us and said, hey, bros, hope you are well. Just wanted to share an underrated gem I've been playing recently. Terminator Resistance. It's probably one of the best games based off of a movie or TV show I've ever played. It's up there with the Arkham games for me. Great story. You don't need to have seen the movies. Great atmosphere and it's fun to play. And this is for you, Colin. The platinum is very easy to get and you can get it in one sitting if you're careful. I missed a few trophies my first time through, but that was my fault and I easily got them the second time around. I just got the PS5 upgrade too, making it a great game even better. Just thought I'd share and give this game more love. Take care and have a great day, my friends. Thank you for writing in, Jason. So um, are you familiar with this this uh, Terminator game at all? Dustin? I, I remember hearing about it because th- this is a re-release of it because i think that the so the terminator resistance let's terminator see. resistance came out in 2019 and then came to ps5 just like a week ago right i'm looking at a, a gameplay trailer now it kind of it has a bit of a, a kill zone vibe to it almost in the way the, the the aim down sights look i don't know colin this might be this might be something for you to look at yeah i mean that's why i wanted to talk about it is the game does look good and it has popped up before it's made by a studio called Tayon, which is like a very random for hire studio and i feel like this is kind of shooting above their or punching above their weight in some way it is an fps and yeah i i totally want to check it out i wanted to throw it out throw it out there because i haven't seen too many people talk about it in our community and it does look great so maybe i'll check it out i'm not so much worried about getting trophies in one playthrough that's always nice 
but what I don't like is all the people getting the second platinum on all their games by just downloading their saves on the new versions of these games. That's annoying me. I don't like that. I'm not doing it on purpose because I didn't do it with Miles Morales because like I want to play Miles Morales again and get it the platinum again. I don't want to just earn it again for no reason. Yeah. Thank you for writing in. Germanus wrote in and said, hey, gents, longtime listener and supporter from Poland here. And I have a comment on the recent Returnal and not only discussion. Why do games have to prove they are worth $70? Recently, when discussing new releases, the argument comes up uh, often comes up. Isn't $70 just the new $60? Shouldn't games be simply more expensive because, well, of inflation economics? I'm a strong believer that games are too cheap, cheaper than they've ever been. Nick Calandra, who was on Sacred Symbols Plus recently, tweeted that gamers are pushing against the price point. I think the spin around that games having to do something crazy to be worth 70 bucks is not helping. Simple. If uh, Game of, or sorry, I guess he means Ghost of Tsushima or The Last of Us Part 2 released today, it would have been $70. Cheers and best of strength in coping with the recent bullshit happenings on Twitter against you, Colin. Best of the whole CLS crew. Thank you, Germanos, for writing in. I thought this was a great point. We, we are having a, a, an ongoing conversation about the $70 price point and people being like, is it worth $70 to jump to $70? And Germanos makes a pretty salient point, which is like, it doesn't matter. It's it's the new 70, 60 is the old 70, 70 is the new 60. It's actually a pretty interesting point. Like this is just the new starting point, And yet we're kind of trying to make the games prove that they're worth the increase in inflation. It's it is strange. What do you think? I think that there's there's a different ways to look at this. I think right now a lot of this proving if it's worth 70 is tied to Returnal, which I definitely I can understand that train of thought in a way, especially with Returnal in that I think people have an association of roguelikes with smaller and indie games. And so you have a $70 AAA roguelike and people then are starting to question. I think it's a fair thing to ask in a way that people are trying to make good purchases. And so they're they're asking that question. I think they'd be asking that question at 60 as well. As far as the new landscape, Things are muddy right now because some developers, like, for example, Resident Evil that comes out tomorrow is not a $70 game because it's it's cross-gen. And it's almost, I, I don't know if Sony, I don't think they would be able to do this, but it's in a weird territory where it would have been just, I think, more accepted if it was like, okay, all PS5 games, all AAA PS5 games are $70, even if it's cross-play. If it's crossplay, then the, the PS4 version, it's either also $70, because if inflation is the reason, then that's then it would, you know, both consoles, it doesn't matter. So to me, it just seems like it's it's just a, a, so complicated in the fact that people have to say, like, well, Resident Evil is, is 60. Do you know what I mean? I lost my train of no, thought a little is. bit, but. No, I, I understand what you're saying. I mean, it's, it is just the generational jump or cross generational nature of the games that's requiring these price points, because I think they more readily embrace across the publishing spectrum a $70 AAA price point because it is the nature of the inflated value of the dollar or lack thereof or your local currency. It's hard to kind of talk about it from that economic lens, but Germanos is right. I mean, we don't ask $60 games to prove their $60 worth, but we're asking $70 games to prove their $70 worth. And they are kind of indistinguishable at this point. My whole thing is, I know I speak from more of a place of privilege and I understand that, but like economic privilege, but I would wonder if $10, like the 70 to $60 difference in Returnal, is that really stopping people from buying it? That's pretty crazy. If it is, I think, 
because this is just this is a, a it's not a high income um ecosystem or a high income hobby but it is an income required hobby you can't just play games it requires money and uh, uh i'm going to be keeping an eye on this saga as we move forward and how the publishers deal with it like capcom for instance when resident evil 9 or whatever is only on ps5 and i was reading about resident evil village too where they were saying that they did build it on ps5 first and then they reestablished it on ps4 and I don't I still don't think the game was intended for last gen. So Drew Brandon wrote into us, said, what's up, ultimate high school level podcasters? My question today is pretty simple. How often do Sony, Microsoft and Nintendo talk to each other? I know that they are obviously all huge rivals, but with personnel switching companies and tons of information constantly switching hands, I wonder if higher ups in these companies ever meet or converse with their counterparts. Love the content as always and keep up the amazing work. Just wanted to quickly answer Jude to say, like, they talk to each other often. I know that for a fact. Now, they're not it's not like the CEOs are talking to each other necessarily, but you know, you have your different liaisons and you have to imagine Microsoft and Sony are in touch on a regular basis, probably a daily basis about games like Minecraft, right? You have to assume that Nintendo is talking to Microsoft about their various Xbox live integrations and all of that. And so it, it is interesting to think about them. I, I'm not so much worried about like the behind, like Phil Harrison has worked for everybody, for instance, and all these guys, I don't think they're bringing, they're bringing that knowledge, but they're not going into like, you know, someone working at Sony is not going to Microsoft one day and then be like, all right, everyone sit down and I'm going to tell you everything Sony's doing. It's just totally not done that way. It would break NDA. It would break mores in the in the industry. And that's not the way it really works. But obviously, they are all interacting with each other and um, doing so pretty regularly. And I imagine that that will continue as the games integrate more and more. You'll see more and more of this. Right. I'm trying to remember if I if I'm remembering this correctly. It's a, a related anecdote, but. I was at the an after party for the Game Awards three years ago, maybe. And at this after party, I remember looking up at the balcony. This was an official Game Awards after party. I remember looking up in the balcony and I swear to God, I saw Reggie Fisame talking to Phil Spencer on the balcony. So obviously it was just like a friendly chat. They were having drinks. They were invited to this after party or whatever, but... It always is funny to to think about that. I'm sure, like these these guys, I'm sure they see each other, um, and you know, with the, with the ESA, I'm sure that there's sometimes meetings and stuff like that. And so, at the end of the day, well, maybe not all the CEOs play games, but most of them do. And I'm sure that they're like, "Hey, I played whatever, and it was it was really good, or whatever." So, I'd like to think maybe not, but it seems like to me that. As cutthroat as the industry can be as far as business, people are still generally friendly with each other. Yeah, it seems that way, uh, too. And there used to be a thing in San Francisco, although I don't know if it happens anymore. There used to be a thing like a it used to be called Night to Unite for Children. Do you do you know anything about this? No. It was it was uh, it was like a gala where in the it was an industry gala where all of the companies would get together. You would buy and buy tables, you know, for fifty thousand dollars or whatever. And, you know, just like at a. PAC or a fundraiser for a politician and then it would be all the companies and they would like take all the money and give it away so that used to be a thing I don't know if they do that anymore but it used to be called night to unite that's what it was called Matt Lamoureux wrote in with the final inquiry and he says hello CCD I'm sorry but you guys are dead wrong Sony must keep its games available only on PlayStation or they will end up just as another publisher if PC players know they just have to wait a year before a first party exclusive dropped on PC why would they ever buy a Sony console how many people have a gaming PC and an Xbox? 
Most likely they have a PC and a Sony console to play exclusives. If they know PC will get those exclusives instead of having a mid-range PC and a PS5, they can put that extra $500 into a better PC rig. Sony is likely only doing the PC ports to keep investors happy since it, of course, increases short-term revenue, but at what I feel is a long-term cost. Thoughts? What do you think of this? I mean, I just totally fundamentally disagree with this. I really think that PC players and just gamer, hardcore gamers in general really overstate how much people care about PC gaming. It's not to say that PC games don't sell extraordinarily well. Of course they do. It's just to say like PC gaming is inaccessible and uninteresting to many, many, many players of video games, including me. And I've been playing games for over 30 years. And so they're never going to get me over there. And there are many people like me. We're in, we're in, I mean, Nintendo just announced that there were 85 million switches sold already. We are at 115 million PS4s. Sony wants to sell 15 million PS5s in its second year. These guys are pushing. PC has nothing to do. PC is not holding the trajectory back, I guess is what I'm saying at all. So the the proof is in the pudding. And uh, also the PlayStation PC games are not doing well on PC. So it doesn't even seem to be working. But what do you think? Matt, uh, we I appreciate you. I want that to be clear, but I really feel like in a way you're saying things that we never argued for or even made a statement like this. It's not the case. I want to say this line in particular. If PC players know that they just have to wait a year before first parties exclusive drop on PC, why would anyone buy a Sony console? That's not the case. We never argued for that to be the case. And I would even argue that's never going to be the case as far as Sony's PC output. We specifically talked about squeezing the orange, getting as much as they can. And the PC releases that we've seen so far have been those specific instances. Horizon. 27th came out in 2017 years ago. Uh, Days Gone, more recent, but we've talked about how uh, kind of a mixed critical launch, mixed uh, decent in sales. Yeah, they also... We also know they're not getting a sequel, so they don't give a fuck about Days Gone. Right. It's just like, get it, get it out. So (laughs) there's never going to be a scenario where it's like a a, a perfect schedule of like, oh, we're going to at least not in the current current landscape of Sony, where they're going to release a game. And then one year later, it's going to be on PC. Death Stranding was a completely different scenario as as a second party relationship with that game. That was a specific deal they had worked out with Kojima. So I don't, dude, I don't understand some of the arguments that have been made against this Sony PC thing. I saw a comment that was saying like, well, if that was a good idea, then why does Nintendo do that? Like, how the fuck could you even compare Nintendo? That's like a, I'm not saying Matt was making an argument like that, but like people are really up in arms about this keeping Sony games exclusive. And I'm like, dude, this is for the good of the platform. This is for the good of future exclusives. As a, if you are a quote unquote, again, not calling Matt this, if you are a Sony fanboy, this is a good thing. This is going to draw more people to the PlayStation platform, thus providing more income for better exclusives that you want. So everyone wins. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think that this is just playing in modernity. This is not 1997. It's not 2010. I think that... <laughs> It, it is the or- squeezing orange metaphor. It's like there, there's nothing to gain, especially with Days Gone. It's like, who gives a sh- I mean, Days Gone is done. They, they, they're they not doing anything else with it. They're, it is done. It is now going to be a $10 game on PSN and a PlayStation Plus game one day. And it is in that that they, PlayStation collection. They've given collection. it away for free twice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, so it's 
it, that, I totally agree with you. And I, I think it, I think a lot of the arguments against their activity on PC are just totally specious because they're just totally despondent from the reality of the situation you need. And I got to I got to tell you, man, you people better gird their loins. God of War is going to be coming to PC. I'm telling you it's happening and it'll happen before the next one comes out. And it should. God of War is done. It came out three and a half years ago or three years ago. It's over like it's people love it, but it's it's made all of its money. I agree with you for this for the sake of PlayStation and for its survival. They have got to become less proprietary doesn't mean that they should still be proprietary but they they're not they've never been nintendo level proprietary and they're never right. going to be so this is like the mid space i i think it's wise to be here i i still and i would say again that the performance of the games on pc indicate that pc gamers do not care about playstation or that those on pc already have played these games on playstation thus countering matt's entire argument i mean the, the proofs in the horizon was really the big one because horizon's a big game it's not like putting out death stranding or even days gone like horizon's big it's a big game it sold over 10 million units on playstation 4 so it didn't seem like it moved the, the needle at all on uh on pc I, you gotta wonder i'm sure that there are this information is out there in surveys or whatever but if like if you are a primarily a pc gamer you can buy more affordable rigs and stuff but a lot of them that really identify with pc gaming are spending thousands of dollars and regularly upgrading they have a lot of you know you have to have a decent income in order to i'm well you don't have to have a decent income to do pc gaming there are cheap options but the people that most identify with it most likely do invest heavily into it so my assumption would be that a lot of the high-end pc users have enough income that they also have consoles for when they want to play exclusive games as well. Maybe that's part of the reason why that maybe they didn't, maybe that idea, that idea of selling them again on PC wouldn't be as valid. I don't know. That's an interesting thought. I'm thinking out loud now. Sorry. Well, I mean, it's fine. I do it all the time. Well, that's all we have for this episode of sacred symbols, a PlayStation podcast. Thank you all for submitting your inquiries and for yeah. supporting us. We really appreciate it. You have any closing comments, Dustin? I don't have any closing comments. I'm excited to play some Resident Evil. Me too. Some near this weekend. And, you know, it's uh it's a good time. Lots of new games. And then like after this month we've got Ratchet and E three. And it just feels like uh Dude, Scarlet Nexus is coming out soon. Oh yeah. Ooh. I forgot about that. So there's lots of, and, and it's unfortunate. It's always like the, the weather is getting nice out. I was on my porch today thinking like, man, I think I want to, it would be nice to go out and do some outside stuff more. Now that it's getting nice, do some skateboarding yeah. or whatever. Sure. But no, no, I got to play the games. Fuck yeah, being right. outside. I totally understand what you're saying. Well, I uh, appreciate you, Dustin. I appreciate all sure. you out there. Thank you for your love, kindness, and support. Remember to support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Media for early ad-free access, the ability to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas, access to Sacred Symbols Plus, etc. We could not do it without you. Of course, leave us nice reviews on uh, podcast feeds. Join us on YouTube. Leave a nice comment. Thumb us up over there. We'll see you next time for more Sacred Symbols. Until then, goodbye. See you next time. Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded from Central Virginia and Burbank, California, USA. The show is conceived by, is written by, and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Chris Ragon Maldonado. Sacred Symbols executive producer is Dustin Furman, and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. 
All of Last Stand's theme music is by Ramon Narvaez. As you know, all of Last Stand Media's shows, including Sacred Symbols, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash laststandmedia. The following names are at the producer support level or higher on Patreon, and we're grateful for your kindness and generosity. Andrew Morgan, Gregory Slavinsky, Stephen Nieder, Ross Marenka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferreira, SL the FMA, Jorge Palomino, Enrique Perez, Daniel D'Amour, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Graff, Israel Pena, Peyton Stone, Roberto, Josh Highland Ruley, Corbin Dallas, Lou Ten Net Lipton, Tyler Watkins, Troilus True, Evan Barr, Talisman, Robbie Nauman, Nuke Dukum, William Holbert, Chris Buston, Josh, Charles Koslevy, Callan Lennon, Daniel Johnson, H Trons, and Unofficial Controller Podcast, Ethan Davies, Jay Getter, Jeff Mercado, Galja, Jody Pack of Fortuna, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadet, Gavin Newland, Saul Balcazar, Zach Parsley, Raul Melendez, Eric Harden, Matt Martin, Kinnams, Adam Barnes, Jonathan H., Joseph Baker, Rodney Coleman, Chris Moore, Rinsler 526, Ben B., Antti Kinnanen, Taylor Barkley, Will Hernandez, Chris Galvin, Ollie Fritz, Chris Buston, Zach Allen, George Anthony Nunez, Kyle Hagel, Christopher, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naiman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., D.B. Cooper, Tom Cargill, Richter 86, Hofel, Eldian, Ian Bravo, Barrett Boswell, Christopher DeVaio, Chris Morton, Kevin Komaki, Blake Israel, Jonathan Coates, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Brian Chand, Organic Produce, Travis Arcoletta, Carlos Algorit, Richard Hebert III, Miranda Grubba, Ray Laja, Donnie Nolan, Josh Yeager, Turbo Makes Games, Matthew Cooper, Dan Parsons, Martin Beck, Gavin, Brian Watkins, Joey Andrzejczyk, Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Christopher Moore, Jacob Bell, Dennis Usel, David Everett, Eric Finkenbeiner, Lou and Ray Loper, Dylan Burns, William, Jason Lusky, Malachi Wall, Zach Brinkley, Betty Ann Moriarty, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Yusuf, Anton K, Alan Tremblay, Tyler Bello, Ryan T. Mandel, Tony Zaniga, Sean Battershall, Max Lazos, Robbie Hensley, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixey, James Kinslow III, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vasquez, William O'Carroll, Jesper Jansen, Phil Crone, Throw7, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, David Mann, Petro Rose, Lockmore, Gio Corsi, Gerald Pennington, Justin Wagaman, Paul Joyce, Chad Lewis, Matt Hazelbaker, Todd Paxton, Joshua Smallwood, Shane Rayum, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Cordero, Keith A. Lewis, Marius Garson Peterson, Tyler Harris, Matthew Perdue, Patrick Harper, Madmock Media, Jonathan Rice, and Casual Misfits Gaming. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. 
And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.